There's this idea out there that to heal from trauma, you need to feel your feelings. And some people will encourage you to feel your feelings and explore your feelings and trust your feelings. But when you have PTSD from childhood, the problem isn't always that you don't feel what you're supposed to feel. More of the time, I think the problem is that you do feel your feelings too much. They get overloaded. And I can show you how to reel that back into a healthy balance. It's called emotional dysregulation. And in my opinion, it can do even more damage than being out of touch with your feelings. Your life can get dominated by your emotions. Are you familiar with that feeling? Your relationships get dominated by your emotions. Your career gets dominated by your emotions. And being so emotional, like having feelings that are inappropriately intense by most people's standards, or when you get emotional at inappropriate times, that's not something where feeling your feelings is the solution. In my view, emotional dysregulation really is kind of like a wrecking ball or like a tornado that spins around and wrecks everything in its path. Where's it gonna go? You don't know. It just sort of comes up out of nowhere and boom, starts destroying things. Sometimes emotional dysregulation goes in the opposite direction and it just sort of like, like it's like a light bulb, you know, where all of a sudden it glows really brightly and then goes out. It's dark, there's nothing, you're not feeling anything. Blazing light, nothing. With complex PTSD, what is often a symptom of emotional dysregulation is that flatness after a big outburst. So you might be familiar with some of those patterns. Feelings go out of control. They're coming out in bursts. They're out of proportion to what's going on or at an inappropriate time, like crying at work or having an angry outburst at your internet provider when you're on a customer service call. And it also refers to going flat emotionally. So it's dysregulated. It's, it's just like not kind of in the middle area that would be appropriate or normal or comfortable for human communication. So big spikes, nothing. But either way, when your feelings are dysregulated, you might say and do things that, are, that only overwhelm you further. And then that actually create new traumas that make your situation even harder than it was. So it can be a vicious circle. So one example could be having an argument with your partner. So let's say something makes you angry and they forgot you had friends coming to dinner and you cooked, but your partner arrived an hour late. You didn't know where they were. They never called and the guests arrived and you didn't have an answer for them. And you called your partner three or four times and you texted and you called and you were getting more and more frantic. You're in the other room to try to hide how angry you are. And the friends are there and you're trying to act normal and like everything's fine and it's no big deal that your partner's not there. And then an hour into the dinner, your partner walks in. They totally forgot. And they see everyone and they remember, oh my gosh, they're so sorry. And they're embarrassed. And the guests are like, it's fine, it's fine. And you're like, where were you? And you're trying to act normal. You're trying to keep your emotions kind of in the bandwidth of not totally awful for the guests, but you can't. And so they're ready to sit down now and enjoy the company. But for you, it's too late. That's emotional dysregulation at work because Old feelings of being ignored and abandoned are just exploding up out of the past. It, you know, it is an offense that your partner forgot. That's not cool. But the intensity that's coming out of you has more to do with the past. It's, you know it because it's like filling up your chest. It's in your gut. It's in your head. You might start getting a headache. And the guests are there. So don't you hate that? Getting emotionally dysregulated in front of company. It was definitely a faux pas that your partner forgot, but everyone was actually okay with that. 
they could forgive it. It's your reaction to the situation that's now ruining the evening. Has this happened to you? In the moment, it feels like these huge emotions are the only feelings a person could have. And now later, you're going to have the insight that your reaction was actually too much, that you became the problem person of the evening. So maybe your guests left early because it got so uncomfortable. But when it's happening, it just feels real. It feels necessary to be that angry, right? It's moments like this when maybe you've said things you didn't mean because now you're not just dealing with disappointment and hurt, but you're believing that nothing's any good because you know what's driving you at that point? Shame. You see the old shame of like that old well of anger and emotion came up and kind of blasted out. There's like this point where, you know, it's feeling really real and you get so mad and then it blasts out of you. And that often sort of triggers you to start recovering and coming back to reality from like, wait, it's not really that bad. So then the shame comes in and you feel worse then you might feel a need to check out, you go flat, you can't apologize, you know, everything. Well, this is how friendships fall apart. This kind of thing is how it falls apart. And it's not your fault you got this way. This is a really common and normal response to having grown up with trauma. But of course, we all wanna work on it and learn to handle it even better. Even if your partner is used to this kind of behavior and they stick around, this kind of conflict that doesn't feel realistic, that feels overblown, It'll gradually drain away love and trust and close off connection that otherwise would be getting deeper and getting sweeter over time. So that's another way relationships get destroyed. So this is what I mean when I sort of give the side eye to the idea that what we all need is just to feel our feelings or you just need to grieve or you just need to get in touch with your anger. Like that's not always the best advice for everybody. <laughs> It's not always what's needed. For some people with CPTSD, what's needed is to self-regulate and get more control over emotions and to have some tools in your tool belt to know how to do that on the spot, even before you really know what's going on with you, even before you've been able to process or talk through what happened. Just when you realize like, uh-oh, I'm going over the top, how do you pull yourself back? Because that's how you can make a positive change for the better. Once you can manage that, you start having a huge amount of space where you can, you can talk things out, you can ask questions, you can express yourself and say, you were late for dinner, we had company, I was so embarrassed. You can say that, but you can say that in proportion to you know, what the problem really is, all right? So I'll show you how to do that. You'll find that if you can control emotions before they get intense, so starting early, you may have this little window of opportunity to do that. You can avoid a lot of problems that come from overreactions and overwhelm, and it's easier to get back to a calm and regulated state then. So I have a friend who visualizes emotional dysregulation as an airplane taking off. You may have heard me talk about that. And regulating her emotions is what she calls keeping the airplane on the ground. And I love that. That is what it feels like. Cause yeah. <laughs> and so you can think of that too. How are you going to keep your airplane on the ground once it takes off? You know, it's just a great big deal. <laughs> so how are you going to do that? You can do it, you can stay regulated even when you're upset if you understand what's happening and you practice, practice, practice. So when you go into a strong emotional reaction, one is notice it's happening. Are you flooding with emotion? Are you feeling adrenaline? Are you panicking? Are you starting to cry? So say to yourself, I'm having an emotional reaction because it's just true. You can just say that to yourself, just ground yourself in reality with that. Ah, I'm having an emotional reaction. So another thing you can do is 
slow down the interaction, just get it way slowed down. A lot of us are very sensitive to hurrying and yet once we start panicking, we start rushing. So it sort of compounds itself. So you can just back up, take big pauses between what is said, take your time to answer, take your time to say things, consider your words, prepare to see things in a new way. Now, a lot of the time, simply slowing things down can reduce the overwhelm. That's all that's needed. Less overwhelm means you can recover your perspective right there and then and experience a little calming effect inside. If you're about to cry and you don't want to cry because you're at work or you're giving a speech or you don't want to be vulnerable in a particular situation, here's a great trick. Imagine that on your stomach, like right below your belly button, that you have a knob. All right, and the knob goes all the way up to 10 or 11 if you like spinal tap. <laughs> if you have emotional dysregulation, it definitely goes to at least 11. All right, so now imagine that the tears are coming because you accidentally left the knob at about eight. So now just in your mind, dial your belly knob just down to two. Just bring it down to two. And that's sometimes that's all that's needed to just like just stop the tears, control the tears and the sadness. It is like somebody left a gate open or something and the cows are running out. So you just shut the gate or bring it down to two. You're not cutting off your emotions 100%, but just controlling the opening there. All right, if it's anger that's happening, use what used to be called restraint of pen and tongue. That's a really nice phrase. I use it all the time. It's so helpful to me. And it means don't say anything or write anything, including emails, texts, letters. Don't do it when you're angry. What happens is this venting will escalate your emotional overwhelm and your thinking gets distorted and you might say things you don't actually believe and that you'll regret. And of course, when if you've ever had a conflict over text, it never goes well. There's no way to communicate the tenderness or the caring or the listening. It just sounds like somebody's snapping no matter how you handle it. So don't do that. When you're angry, don't write. Instead, because it's important to express yourself, Promise yourself that you'll express yourself just a little later when you're calm. You can find a gentle, polite way to postpone any more conversation. You can just say, I really want to have this conversation. It's important to me. I, I definitely don't want to, you know, get all intense on you. Could I just have 15 minutes so I can, you know, just bring my emotions together? You don't even have to say that if you're at work. You can just say, you know what? I have this other call. I need to go do that. Can I come back and have this conversation? with you in 15 minutes. So whether you choose to tell anybody that you're taking time out to emotionally re-regulate or not, people will generally accept that you can continue the conversation later. And whether they realize <laughs> what was about to happen or not, it's good for everybody for you to show up kind of regulated for all your conversations. It's just, it's good for you, it's good for them. If it feels urgent for you to express yourself, that is often a cue that you need to take double time pausing and getting re-regulated. The sense of urgency is not always reliable with CPTSD. It's, it's basically your old like emergency response kicking in over stuff that's just about communication or saying how you feel. So it, when it really is an emergency, if you need to pull somebody out of a rushing river or you're in an abusive situation and you need to get out the door, of course urgency is appropriate. But if it's just about communicating something or trying to talk something through, if you feel urgency, it's very likely going to only benefit if you pause for 30 minutes or an hour or tomorrow. There's very little that has to be solved like in, in any given day. 
that's important. So if you can come back regulated in more time, that's really good. Don't underestimate the damage you can do when you, when you try to uh, solve problems when you're dysregulated. It's kind of like driving drunk, okay? All right, another thing you can do, do some emergency writing. And I'm talking about the daily practice way of writing that I teach. I have a free course. I always link it on the free tools page of my website. The free tools page of my website is always linked down in the description section below. But it's called the daily practice. And I teach a specific technique where you can get your fearful and resentful thoughts on paper, kind of ask for them to be removed, rest your mind. Give it a try. Um, so many of us have had it experience life-changing um, healing from being able to put our emotions on paper before just kind of throwing them at another person. It often feels, especially if you were neglected as a kid, that what you really, really need is to tell somebody how much they hurt you. Because there's this fantasy that if you tell them, then they'll be like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'll come in and I'll care for you and I'll help you feel better. But A, in adult life, that's usually not how people respond when we come come at them like in, in anger. They don't respond like trying to help us. And if they do, it's probably not coming from a healthy place. But also, it's not realistic that other people can, even if they want to, that they can re-regulate your nervous system. It is an inside job. So, so we take those feelings to the paper and have a process for relieving them before having the communication. We do need communication, but it when it's packed up with like all your unmet childhood needs, it becomes it becomes something quite frightening and overwhelming to other people. They're either gonna run or they're gonna pretend, but it's going to be a disappointment and it's gonna hurt your relationship. So paper, that's, that's a suggestion there. What I love about paper, you can do this just about anywhere, in the bathroom, you can do it in the dark of a movie theater, you can do it in the car when you're a passenger, not driving obviously. You can do it in bed in the middle of the night. You can do it at your desk while you're pretending to work. And employers, I'm an employer too. <laughs> But here's the thing, I, I'm not saying that you should just fake work and steal time from your employer like that, but sometimes the most efficient way to get productive in your day is to take the overwhelming emotions and just get them out on paper so that you can return your focus back to the task at hand. That's a good thing to do. It's definitely better than having an emotional meltdown too. All right, another thing you can do is get some hard exercise to kind of like rinse all those stress chemicals out of your body. You can run up and down a flight of stairs a couple times if you are physically able to do that. If you can walk, you can take a brisk walk. Whatever you physically can do to get your heart rate up, maybe just break a little bit of a sweat. It just is so powerful to turn around the stress chemicals that are active when you're in, a, in emotional dysregulation. And sometimes, sometimes you can come at emotional dysregulation through reason. Sometimes you have to come at it through physical action. Um, there are a number of ways that you, can, that you can approach your healing. So I'm giving you a list of them so you can find your favorites. All right, here's one. This is another physical one. You can wash your hands or in a big pinch, you can take a shower. Wash your hands in cold water, splash it on your face. Everybody does that, right, sometimes? Or wash your hands in nice, warm, soapy water that feels nice and take just take a minute to feel the water on your hands and the soap and the clean hands and feel how nice that is. You're using these tactile experiences to just sort of come back 
from this sort of flight away from what's actually happening for your senses right here in the room for you right now. You, you, it, this is called being in your body. And I don't actually believe that people leave their bodies, but that's a metaphor for what it happens when our nervous system is starting to shut down, like quadrants of your brain are just going dim and you're not able to process sensory input from where you are. And that's when you're often vulnerable to you know, outbursts or saying things you don't mean. You want to be in touch with all of your feelings. You want to be in touch with cues. You want to be able to detect danger. Like if you're going up and shouting at somebody on the street, what if they're dangerous? What if they could physically harm you? You need to be tuned in, right? And so that's, that's why physical, at physical regulation, neurological regulation goes hand in hand with emotional regulation. So we're learning to master re-regulation of both. It all comes down together and you begin to be centered in a calm awareness. And you're just, you have nice ears to hear what's going on. You have eyes, you have a heart to feel what's going on. And imagine like if you could do that, that would change a lot, right? So emotional dysregulation feels to me, and I think a lot of people, a little bit like a trance, like you're hypnotized. You're a little bit out of touch with some things. You're deeply in touch with, with something else, a feeling. And what, what you need to develop is to have part of you that can sort of stand outside that situation and go, I see that I'm going into a trance-like dysregulation state. And that part of you that can see it's going on can kind of take you gently by the shoulders and say, hey, come on, Anna come on out, let's get out of this dysregulated state. Let's use some tools. Once you have that part of you that can sort of pull you back a little bit when you notice it's happening, you've just gotten on the path to serious change. That's how you do it. Self-awareness, just enough to pull back. Before you know what to do, before you've solved all your problems, you're just like, okay, this thing is happening. I know it doesn't go well when I you know, say things and try to solve problems like this. Let me take a beat, all right? If you like, you can talk with somebody who is trustworthy, they understand you, and who's not in that moment in a conflict with you, very important, someone else. Sometimes it helps to get an outside perspective, but I don't recommend trying to tell a long story. I don't recommend trying to vent, going into yet another hypnotic trance, and then he did this, and then he did that, and then, ah, ah, you know, have you done that? I've done it. That's bad, that just takes me worse into emotional dysregulation. So the, the discussion, it doesn't usually work that well when you're already upset, but obviously sometimes this can't be avoided and somebody will try to help you and assist you to kind of emotionally calm it. The irony is that one of the hardest things for a person in dysregula emotional dysregulation to hear is, can you calm down? <laughs> Ma'am, please calm down. It's like, Woo! you know, it goes off again. So sometimes it's going to be you by yourself. So one way to check in with yourself when you're having one of those conversations is to ask yourself, is having this conversation making you more dysregulated? Are you feeling more upset? Are you maybe talking faster and faster, louder and louder? Are you talking on top of people? These are signs that you're actually going into dysregulation. So if you can have that part of you stand outside and go, oops, I'm getting more dysregulated. You just find a polite way to say, okay, well, thanks for your help. Now get yourself to a private space with your pen and pencil or your tools, your physical tools, to start bringing yourself back before you begin talking again. Talking is sometimes the gateway drug to more dysregulation, just saying. Sometimes it's useful, sometimes it's not. We need to learn the difference because 
When we're dysregulated, it will often dysregulate the person we're talking to. And that's how terrible conflicts get going. Because when we're dysregulated, the person we're getting all dysregulated on will often also dysregulate. And two dysregulating, dysregulated people will often escalate quite badly. You've probably been there. Everything that needs to be said can and should be said, but not necessarily in that moment. If you possibly can, wait until you're regulated, calm, more lucid, able to feel the range of feelings you have about someone and, and not just the angry part, not frantically trying to get them to understand something. These steps, by the way, don't just help you regulate emotionally, but they help you re-regulate your brain and in your body, your heart rate, your breathing, your thinking, your coordination of your you know, feet and hands, your ability to focus. So I have a quiz you can take to, if you want to check some of the symptoms of dysregulation. If you're hearing this and you're like, wait, that happens to me. I got a list of them and you can check them off on this list. That is in my free tools page too that I mentioned on my website, free tools. The link to the free tools page is down below in the description section. When you're re-regulating your emotions and the intense thoughts keep just fluttering in, just keep reminding yourself to hold the thought and instead focus on next steps, positive actions positive words. This isn't positive thinking. It's not toxic positivity. This is just redirecting your thoughts when they're sort of going whack to a clearer mental space. Cause that's part of you too. You have clarity in there. You have a place in there that is, that has less emotional charge where you can anchor yourself. You can remind yourself that's your home. That's, that's, that's where you go when things get crazy is into this, this home inside. You're not suppressing your feelings. You're just postponing expressing your feelings until you're a little more regulated. And contrary to popular belief, by the way, you don't have to talk things out to get regulated. Talking about your feelings, it's important, but there's a time and a place. And sometimes that best time and place is later when it will be helpful and constructive and when it will help you have and keep and strengthen relationships with people you love, people you treasure, even though it doesn't feel like that when you're emotionally dysregulated. So when this happens, just keep reminding yourself by silently telling yourself, I'm feeling dysregulated and then use your tools. Stop venting. Remind yourself that you don't need to express yourself and clear the air right then. Your words will be there. Your feelings will be there waiting for you when you're calmer. You will have access to yourself. You'll be no longer dysregulated. And then when you express yourself, you can do it elegantly and with fairness and love. It'll feel great to keep your relationship gentle like this and to get past the shame of overreactions. And then you can enjoy the way that your connections with other people, rather than getting ruined, begin to get nicer, deeper, stronger over time. If you had childhood trauma and you've sought help for the problems that it's caused you in your life, you may have been told that you needed to get in touch with your anger to heal from the trauma. And I know for some people there is something freeing about that, for a while anyway, but if you were already angry, if you were already just barely holding in the rage or the irritability or the contempt you inherited from growing up abused and neglected, that's a really dangerous assumption that what you need is to go even deeper into those harsh emotions. The fact is people with complex trauma can tend to get emotionally dysregulated. Feelings can go from a normal level to a surge level suddenly for seemingly no reason. And in the moment, it feels like the right level of anger. But later you can see what everyone around you could see in that moment, that it was an overreaction. 
And it's this kind of anger that can really cause problems in your life, especially when it becomes a habit or when anger becomes a kind of drug that you unconsciously use to get up and out of depression. And I'll explain that in a minute. So how do you draw a line between healthy anger, it's an emotion we need, right? And unhealthy, dysregulated anger. How do you know the difference? Now, before I had any healing from my childhood trauma, one of my biggest problems was in my relationship to anger. And one of the most hurtful things that anyone's ever said to me is, you know, you are a very angry woman. And it hurts even now to say that. My meditation teacher once said that I used to be what he called a serrated knife, <laughs> but I was. I was rough, I was sharp, I was carrying a lot of anger. And that's not irrational, it's, it's what I knew. Because first of all, the adults in my life when I was a kid went way out of control with their anger. I grew up watching my dad rage at my mom and my mom berate my dad and the two of them would smash things and get violent. And even after they were divorced when I was seven, anger and rage became the default way that they communicated about anything. So we had a lot of alcoholism in the family and drunk people make everybody angry <laughs> and the angry people make the drunk person angry. So I grew up terrified of of anger in myself and of angry people. And I know a lot of you know exactly what I'm talking about. I remember when I was five or so, I was angry in my own right about something, really angry. And instead of a temper tantrum, I went around the house and folded a folding chair. And I carefully took a vase down off the mantle and put it gently down on the hearth. And that was my way of saying I was fed up, damn it. I couldn't bear roughness though. I couldn't bear the yelling and the doors slamming and the sound of breaking glass. There was a lot of that. The silence when you know something really terrible is coming, that used to really scare me. I hated violence. I still do. I hated the sounds and the smells of drunken people. And there was no way around it. It just put me on high alert and this weird kind of tension inside. So in my teens and twenties, I figured that I'd solved things by just avoiding angry people. And I thought of myself as a very peaceful, loving person. And it's not that I wasn't, but um, I had a lot of anger and I didn't even know it sometimes. I remember before I ever learned to re-regulate my brain, my emotions were confused. When I acted angry, I was actually hurt. And when I was depressed, it was because I was angry. And I did passive aggressive things like gossiping, and making sarcastic comments. And I had BS'd everybody about what I was feeling for so long, I had no idea what I was feeling. And then I started therapy and had a place to talk about what happened. And it started out, I didn't really have strong emotions about my childhood, but boy, the therapist kind of confirmed how bad it had been, almost to a fault, I would say. And she'd want me to talk about it and talk about it and soon, Oh yeah, I had some serious anger going. And the more I talked to her, the angrier I, I got. First like the legitimate anger, but then kind of like this weird like dissociated anger. And I read some books and I talked to other angry people and soon like everywhere I went, with everyone I hung out with, I was coming off angry. I was the angry woman. So I was a real drag to hang out with, to be honest. <laughs> it was me now, it was I who was raging and smashing things like had happened when I was a kid. And I wasn't as bad as my parents, but 
I intentionally broke some dishes in the kitchen once. I threw a ceramic mug out the passenger window of a car. And even thinking about this now makes me feel awful. It was frightening to the people around me. So I don't want to do that. I, I thought I was getting in touch with my feelings, but actually I was losing control of my feelings and I was learning to amp them up and almost dissociate using them like a drug to do that. It wasn't cathartic. There was no feeling of being done with the feeling. It just wore me out. It just tore me down. It alienated everyone. And there's nothing healing about that. So luckily I stumbled on a new way to heal and I quit that anger-based therapy and started using techniques that helped me very quickly get those harsh emotions quietly out, expressed. And this gave me comfort instead. It gave me a clear mind to get the focus off all the bad things from the past and onto my present day surroundings and how I was handling things. And from there, it was a lot easier to start solving problems and building a happy life. Now, maybe you're also in the process of finding the techniques that work for you or understanding what part of your behavior is just trauma driven and what is part of you. So if you want to learn more about common symptoms of childhood PTSD, I created a self-evaluation that you can take and you can see what's happening for you. And there's a link to that. It's a quiz. I have a series of quizzes actually for different parts of your life and how CPTSD might have affected you. And I have that along with my daily practice calming techniques. And it's all on this page called the free tools page of my website, crappychildhoodfairy.com, free tools page. That page is linked down in the description section below. I just try to get it like into your hands very easily all the time. I'd like you to have that. Really, it's free. So these days, having stuck with my techniques for years and years and continuing to work on myself, I've made so much progress. And I wish I could say that kind of PTSD anger never comes back, but it does sometimes. And the progress is that I notice it right away and I can change course on it quickly. Some anger is normal and natural. It's a useful emotion. It's an honest response to unfairness and hurt. It tells you when action is required. With healthy anger, it flashes through you like burning paper. And sometimes it lasts longer, but at a certain point, when it's not helping you take action or solve problems, anger that lingers turns into unhealthy anger. And that is something many of us were encouraged to have, or in fact, became addicted to having. Anger as a solution for pain. That's kind of the idea out there. And I wanted to tell you why it feels like that's true, that it's a solution, but it doesn't work. So you can think about your feelings on a vertical scale, all right? And way down here is death or you're catatonic or something. And then right up here, well, right here, you're depressed. And then obviously there are degrees of depression and it's a terrible place to get stuck. And if something you do or some therapy you try helps you go from depression to <gasps> anger, which is pretty common in the psychology world, this might be helpful because it's up. You're going from depression up to anger. And it's pretty easy to help someone get angry. It feels good at first, doesn't it? Because it gets you out of bed and up off the floor. When you're hovering at the bottom of the emotional scale down here, anger and rage are a step in the right direction. And you think, wow, this is a breakthrough. I'm feeling my anger. And there's this energy to it. But it's a mistake to think that anger is the solution. This idea that feeling your feelings is inherently constructive is just not true. 
There's a time when we need to get in touch with our feelings and a time to be angry and a time to move through that. So if anger isn't transformed pretty quickly into some clarity of mind and sane action, it'll just take you right back down the vertical scale into depression, isolation, and down on the floor again. So what to do with the anger? For me, it is the most profound turning point of my life when I was shown how to put it on paper. And I put my fears and resentments about life and tragedies and the injustices and the petty little things that bother my mind. It all goes on paper and I ask God to remove it. Now you may not believe in God or any kind of higher power. And if that's the case, you can write it using my format and then write a release statement. So I ask God to remove it, you can release it. Writing and releasing is the core technique I teach. And this is how I had my transformation when I was sad and scared and struggling with PTSD symptoms. You just might be amazed at how much more effective and clear-headed you are with those resentful and blamey thoughts out of your head, at least for a little while, out and on paper, so that you can be emotionally free enough to see what needs to be done about problems. Because sometimes the situation is you know, it's just crying for you to jump in and act, to do something. And other times, nothing needs to be done. Sometimes it's just an angry, stray wisp of emotion that got dredged up and it softens and it's gone. So everything depends on you knowing the difference, asking yourself, is this anger something I need to attend to, to act on, to express myself, or am I basically having a CPTSD reaction? Now, when you have some freedom from the fearful and resentful thoughts, even if it's just for a little while, you're in a much better position to see the difference, to discern whether it's time to forget or time to get busy. And taking action is everything when it comes to healing your life. Now, if you're like I was when I was first using this freeing technique, I worried that if I lost my anger, I'd have no defense against abuse and pressure from people. And it's been my experience that the opposite is true. When my mind was tangled up with anger and resentment and someone was acting negatively toward me, I used to get paralyzed or confused. And I start flailing around trying to fix the situation without understanding what, what was going on. When I started releasing all that fear and resentment, and there is a technique, again, it's a technique. It's not just journaling. It's not just, you know, oh, I release it. But when I was actually getting free of all those racing negative thoughts and beliefs, I could see, I knew when I was being attacked and I knew when the disturbance was actually in here. I got clarity and with a clear mind, I'm able to take responsibility when that's in order. I can respond appropriately to problems. I can either protect myself or get away from problems and danger or stay and work things out if that's the right thing, if that's what I want. I have a choice. And if you do this consistently, you have fewer problems. And when things do go wrong, you can work them out more gracefully. You don't have to fret. You don't have to freak out. When something upsets you, you're in the habit of clearing things up. So you know what to do first. And that's to calm the inner disturbance so that you can be clear what you need to do. Most of the time, all you need to do is take a deep breath and carry on. Some people who were heavily criticized or bullied when they were small create a coping mechanism of suppressing themselves. And the idea is, if you can stay off the radar screen of the person who tyrannizes you, 
You don't challenge them. Don't try hard to accomplish anything. Don't attract attention. Don't admit mistakes. You'll be safe. And maybe that was true in childhood, but if this goes on into adulthood, it can turn into a really hard pattern of avoidance. Avoidance of connection with people, of accomplishment, of meeting your own material needs, and of pursuing a life that makes you happy. Now, avoidance makes your life small and lonely. It can make it feel like some force outside yourself is making it impossible to change. And believing this can make people not only feel helpless, but sour and angry. Do you know people like this? That defensive anger is kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. They're so sure that they won't be understood or accepted. They kind of lead with criticism and blame. We all have this a little bit. Hiding, you know, criticizing, blaming other people as a way to keep our fears at bay, that we don't belong, that we're not good enough, that no one likes us. And that resentful martyr energy really does push people away. Despite anything else that might be good about you, it can ruin relationships and the possibilities of your life. So it's good to notice it, to take stock from time to time and see if unconsciously you're actually blocking yourself from the life you want. So I've made a list of more than 40 signs that you might be acting out on an old, unhealthy pattern of keeping your life small, that's sabotaging you being happy. So let's start with material self-suppression, because that's what I'm calling it, suppressing yourself. Number one, you confuse living simply with actually what self-neglect, maybe expressing resentment at people who have decent things, you know, an okay house, clean clothes, good healthy food, and imagining that not having these things puts you on a higher moral plane, like you're just not so materialist or something. Number two, your living space is cluttered and dirty. Yeah, <laughs> that is a way to self-suppress. When, when your space isn't clear, you don't have space to invite people, to dream, to have orderly thoughts. Uh, for people with CPTSD, having clutter in your space can increase dysregulation. Number three is you don't exercise, even though we all know what a strong medicine it is for depression, for dysregulation, for anxiety, for your health in general. Not exercising is a way of suppressing yourself because if you did, you would begin to bloom. That's what happens. Number four, you go to bed day after day feeling guilty about what you ate that day. So what that points to is that you have a chronic pattern of eating in a way that you don't want to eat. And you know, a lot of people do this. I do it sometimes, but it's this terrible feeling going to bed at night and thinking only about what I ate and beating myself up over it is definitely making myself small. The best thoughts I can have are clear, free, happy thoughts that empower me to eat the way that I intend to eat the next day. Number five, you're waiting until you're a different weight before you buy decent clothes. <laughs> Do you have that? Do you have like multiple sizes all over the closet and in the drawers? And then you don't have anything nice because any day now you're gonna change the way you eat and not feel guilty at night, that whole thing. That is self-suppression. You can go ahead and have decent clothes at the weight you are right now. Um, number six, your car is full of litter. If you drive a car and it's full of litter, this is um, kind of like the equivalent of having a messy house. 
and it communicates to other people that you maybe don't have your, your thoughts in order. And I bet you're avoiding giving people rides places. Free up your life, clean out your car, make it decent, wipe down the dashboard. Number seven, your desk is cluttered. Same thing as the car or the house, but your desk is where you sit down. If, if you're like me, I work at a desk and I intentionally have a desk that's really smaller than I would like it to be because if you give me extra feet at the end of the desk, I'll pile it up with papers. I've always got like a ton of papers and a lot of stuff going on. And every morning I get up, I make my bed and then I tidy up my desk. And I guess I could do it the night before, but I'm too tired at that point. <laughs> I get up in the morning and I tidy my desk and I have these shelves where I put things like, this is something I'm not dealing with today, but I'm dealing with it tomorrow. And I have these really cool like colored plastic pocket folders that I put them in and by project and they're see-through so I can see what they are. So that way I can have, you know, 20 projects going, but not on my desk. Number eight, you don't buy yourself clothes that look good on you. That part of that goes back to what I said about like, you know, feeling like, oh, there's this future weight that you're going to have. You will look a certain way in the future and then you can have the clothes. But actually you deserve to buy clothes that look good on you right now. And I know hardly anybody has money for all the clothes they would ever want. But even if you go to thrift shops, I love thrift shops. You get to pick out the clothes that look good on you. Uh, number nine, <laughs> your bras and underwear are tattered, stained, frayed, falling apart. This is a way that you communicate to yourself that you're not worth it. And again, I know they cost money, but you can go to someplace like Target and it's really not that much to have decent, proper, newish underwear and bras. And what about another form of self-suppression, romantic self-suppression? This is another way that you might be playing small, all right? Um, there's someone in your life who mistreats you and you've said nothing because conflict for you is unbearable. At a certain point in your healing, you're going to need to say something. And yes, the whole thing could fall apart if you're honest. But I always say, if being truthful causes a relationship to fall apart, it was never real in the first place. All right, the next one, you love someone in, in your life, but you don't tell them. Now, I realize that a lot of people watching this channel, it might be limerence. You can't tell them because it will freak them out because you, you either know flat out or you suspect that if they knew how strong your feelings were, they would avoid you. They would, you know, put up a boundary and not want to deal with you. That's possible. But you know what? Even if that happened, mightn't it not be for the best? Now, if that other person has a partner, I would say, don't say anything clear on out. But sometimes expressing how you really feel is a good way to like, let the chips fall where they may. Let your life move forward. Let the story go where it's trying to go. Either the whole thing falls apart because of who you are, or who knows, maybe it's meant to be and you come together. But when you hide how you feel about things, you prevent the story, you get it stuck in mud. And that is an empty mud. Nothing good happens there where you're not honest about where you're coming from. All right, the next one, the person you love doesn't love you back, but you hang out with them. That is a way to play small. That is a way to take all your potential to be in love, to be loved back and take it and just invest it in this, this black hole where nothing comes back out. Okay, here's one. You date someone for years, but you don't commit. Maybe they want you to commit, but you can't. You kind of want to keep it in limbo forever. Now, is limbo really the best for anybody here? If the relationship is not good enough to commit, maybe 
is it right to let it go and open up your life to something new that is really fabulous that you really do want something to ask yourself all right another one you have a partner who loves you but you're not faithful to them you've got something going on in secret you can't be straight with them about how you really feel you're tying up all their emotional energy so that you can i don't know have a safe haven to go to that keeps your life small no good thing comes to people who are dishonest like that all right similarly you're in a relationship you know can't last but you don't leave another way to tie up all your emotional energy and make sure nothing wonderful happens and finally on the relationship front this is a way to keep your life small you really want a relationship but you don't do anything about it right this is really common for people with CPTSD, like trying to meet somebody, putting yourself out there is very triggering, creates the possibility that you'll get rejected, that you'll feel terrible, that you'll go through abandonment melange. Abandonment melange is a very painful emotional state that can happen to people who were abandoned as kids. That's this very intense combination of grief and anxiety and rage. And it comes down upon you and feels like your life is over because somebody doesn't like you. But when you have a name for that phenomenon, you can handle that phenomenon. It's abandonment melange. And it, it's just, it's a, it's a emotional wave that comes over people who have that history of abandonment. But guess what? Then it passes right on by when you know what it is. You can afford to put yourself out there. You can afford to express that you like somebody and they don't like you back. But to do that, it's really important to be able to strengthen your ability to handle big emotions. I'm going to talk about that at the end. All right, here's another one. You wish you had friends, but you say publicly that people are terrible these days and you insist they're not worth the trouble. I see, a, I see so much of this in the, in the YouTube comments. And I think a lot of these, I'm actually responding to things I, I see in the YouTube comments, a lot of pessimism. You know, just pessimism about people. People suck, men suck, women suck. All women want is money. All men want is sex. All this, this is trauma-driven thinking. And if, I just encourage you, do not commit to these thoughts. Have an open mind. Obviously, there are great people out there. And obviously, love does occur. If you want to have friends, if you hope to ever meet a partner, then the cynicism needs to be addressed and healed. It needs to get out of the way so that you can have an open enough mind to go out there and have some adventures, take some risks. All right, here's one. You never have people over. Maybe you go to their house sometimes, but you never have people over. That's a sign you're playing small. Um, one is you complain and gossip about a friend, but you don't talk to the friend about what's bothering you. So that's a way that you vent without actually solving the rift in the relationship that's keeping you not only like disconnected from them, but causing harm to their reputation. All right. You know, it's your friend's birthday, but you don't send a note. <laughs> and here's the thing about Facebook is, um, if you're on Facebook, you can know people's birthdays and it'll come up every day that it's happening. And I sometimes talk about this man, uh, my friend, when I was growing up, she died when we were 26 and I stayed friends with her mother and her mother, one of her big regrets is that she stayed with my friend's father for so many years. And after he died, when she was 80, she got together with a longtime friend who was also widowed and they had the most wonderful romance of their lives. And the guy, his name was Dick. 
And he said, he, what he did was he kept a Rolodex, because that's what people their age do, <laughs> is keep a Rolodex. And he kept track of everybody's birthday. He kept track of the big events, like if they had been in the hospital or they had a child or maybe um, a loved one died. And he kept track of all that. And every day he'd go on his date, his date Rolodex and he'd see, who do I need to reach out to? And he'd call them or send an email or a card. What a lovely guy. And you know what? He had oodles of friends. He had a lot of joy, a big warm heart. And really, no matter what you've been through, you can be like him. So my friend who married him as her second marriage, she said that her 80s were absolutely the happiest decade of her life. And she only wishes that she had found him before. And she, it, it really opened her heart to be around somebody who was so loving to people in general. He was a nice guy. I got to meet him too. Okay, here's one. You're walking down the street. There's not a lot of people around. You pass somebody and you look down. Do you do that? That is a small thing to do. It is so much more joyful and it makes life better for you and for the person you pass to just say hello, give them a little nod. You don't have to get into a big conversation about it because I know that's what you're worried about. Um, the next one, before you leave your house, you look around out the window to make sure that no neighbors around, because also you don't want to talk to them. And I know, I know, uh, I have some neighbors who are very, very talkative. And the minute you, you know, let them in, you give them an inch and just say, hey, how's it going? Oh, yeah, it was raining. <laughs> you know, this whole conversation erupts. So this is about having boundaries. If you don't want to have a deep conversation when you say hello to people, you practice your exit lines. You go, I'm so glad to see you. I have to go right now but take care. See you next time. And you say that and you make your exit. And now it's safe for you to say hello to the neighbors. You, you might be making a tremendous difference in their lives just by connecting with them. And I know it's good for you. All right, here's one. You have people you love, but you don't call them, right? Same sort of principle. Or when your phone rings and it's someone you know, you don't answer. Ah, it would be a big conversation. I can't deal with it. If you have boundaries, you can call your friends and you can pick up the phones when they call. Here's one. When a dog comes over and wags its tail, pet the dog. <laughs> Don't ignore it. Ignoring the dog, ignoring love when it just shows up like a little loving creature shows up in your path. Take the love. Just give them a little pat on the head and say hello. Okay, here's another category of self-suppression. You don't participate when participation is called for. For example, right, when you join a group, it gets uncomfortable for you. And not only do you leave, but then you tell everybody how crappy the group is and criticize them. Have you done that? Like burning your bridges on those people. If you really don't feel right in a group or in a friendship, it's okay to leave. It's okay to set boundaries and go. But whenever possible, don't burn your bridges. Don't, don't talk bad about those people. I mean, basically, don't talk bad about anyone. It's just not a good idea. It's not necessary. You know that old rule, is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? Before you say something about people. All right, when you go to a potluck dinner, you bring something cheap or you bring nothing, right? And then you don't lend a hand with cleanup. That's a way that you don't participate. Talk about not participating. As a person who hosts a lot of potlucks, um, I, I know exactly who it is who brings like a protein, who brings a salad, and who brings a six pack of cheap soda and dumps it on the table. You know, <laughs> I don't mind. I tell everybody, you don't have to bring anything, but I love the people who participate and the people who, you know, bring something that's nice to eat and the people who help me clean up will always get invited back again. 
Um, all right, here's another one. You go to 12-step meetings, but you don't work the steps. A lot of people do that. 12-step meetings, any particular meeting you go to is really only as good as the proportion of people who have some recovery there, and recovery comes through working the steps. And um, you know, this is just a little talk about 12-step life, um, and I know you're watching this, it might not be your thing, but it applies to a lot of situations you go to. I've been to meetings where almost nobody was working the program. They were just going there talking about how terrible everything is in their life. And you know what? It's depressing. It's depressing. There's room for new people to talk about what's bothering them when there's a lot of other people who are talking about the solution. So if you're trying to recover, but all you're doing is going in and saying how terrible everything is, I have news for you. Saying how terrible everything is, is not really going to solve anything. We all have to like recognize it at some point that maybe things aren't going well and maybe you tell somebody because you're asking for help, like in a group or to a therapist or a friend or a sponsor. But talking about your problems and how unhappy you are at a certain point makes you more unhappy. And not only that, it brings down other people. And you would be wise if you do want to feel happier. Go to where people are talking about their solutions, how they made things better. Listen to them, match them. Start using your time, for example, in a 12-step meeting when it's your turn to share. Say what the problem is, but then talk about the tools you use to make it better. Talk about the solution. There's people in the room who need to hear it. Even people who have been there longer than you, they need to hear that. They need to hear, what do I do? But what do I do? But what, what helps? Talk about what helps. I know you know you've done things that help. And every day, if you're working on healing, and this is true also like in my membership program, if people are working my program of healing, they're going to have little victories. And those little victories are medicine for everybody in the community. You can do that in the comments in YouTube too. Share your successes. All right, there's this other form of self-suppression around accomplishment. And, you know, you might think it keeps you safe from criticism and rejection, but it doesn't work. So here's how you can tell if you're, you know, suppressing yourself around accomplishment. You have stories that you tell to prove to other people how unfair life is, that you tried, but the world wouldn't let you succeed. And I'm telling you this because this is a huge go-to that I used to have. I just would feel really discouraged it was um, building up because I, I have a daily practice technique now that I use to get my fearful and resentful thoughts out. And there's a lot of times in my life where I felt like the, you know, the deck was stacked against me. My boss, um, my former partners, uh, friends, I felt like they wanted me to fail. They were undermining me. They were um, trying to make things harder for me. And I would talk about it to a lot of people. And then, you know, I would come to my senses and go, what have I done? Now I've made everybody like hate this person. Or <laughs> I'm looking like somebody who, who's got these terrible problems and I'm, I'm actually not going to do anything about them because actually what was going on is I was having a lot of fear and resentment. I haven't actually made a decision to leave. But what I teach when I'm teaching people how to recover from trauma is to take back their sovereignty. That means not only do other people dictate how you heal or what you need, but it means you've got to take responsibility if something's really terrible for you, that it's, that it's for you to change, that other people, like, there is no, like, knight in shining armor who's going to come along and, like, save you from your job or save you from your terrible group of friends. That if it's really so bad, instead of talking to people about it or complaining, it's time to make a change. And I know change is hard. I know. All right, here's another one. You hate your job and you want to be promoted, but you can't because you don't have the skills and yet you don't go learn the skills. 
This is really, really common. Um, it surprised me. I didn't learn this till I was in my 40s. <laughs> how much mobility was there for me if I would actually do that. I used to really externalize responsibility for me getting anywhere at work. And I was always very unhappy about it. And I would say that I was, I tended to be underemployed and underutilized. I, I think I had a lot of potential when I was younger, but because of the drama from the, you know, problems in my life and the trauma, and then my own, my own self-suppression, instead of like asking for a raise, I would just be resentful for two years that I didn't get one, you know? And there's a lot of power in asking for a raise. If they don't give you one, you can still stay and you've lost nothing, or you can take that as information and you can go do something else. And I know there's going to be a ton of people in the comments going, ah, oh, blah, blah, capitalism. And you know what? That's just more self-suppression. Like it, you really are literally not in a position to change the economic system where you live. You are in a position to change to change your actions, to move yourself somewhere where you might better like to be. And I thought that I couldn't raise my income for years. I, I really felt suppressed by this. And then I had a kid and the kid's dad left me and, and I had to raise my income. And so many single parents have been in this situation. And I, I had to think real quick about how I was going to do that. And it turned out that once it was absolutely necessary, I did what was necessary. I made huge changes in my life and I, I, I learned some skills. I changed my appearance. I started showing up on time. I started showing up with an attitude that would help me earn more money. And it was, you know, I, I just laid it on the line and then I asked for the raise. My boss complained, but I got the raise. You know, that's what happened. So I, I just am urging you, don't predict that the world is unfair. That's what I'm talking about, that sort of projection. Like, I never get what I want. It's always unfair. A lot of things are unfair. You haven't gotten a lot of things, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't just take the logical action to move toward what you want. And that's what this video is about, is about ways you block yourself from getting what you want. Cynicism, pessimism, giving up, blaming other people, all that stuff. Like, we all do it a little bit, but at a certain point, it's important to shift gears and figure out like, what can I change here? Because it's not going to change unless I change it. One thing that I can guarantee is going to hobble your ability to make a positive change in your life is if you're looking at screens during every free hour, looking at your phone, looking at your computer, looking at streaming, whatever it is, games, the time doing that is time taken away from your potential to make a positive shift in your life. Screens are nice for relaxation. They're necessary for work for a lot of us, but they should not fill up all your hours. Personal development. Okay, personal development could be happening on screens. You're on a screen right now to watch this video. It's important to use your time well to move your life forward into how you want it to change. All right, um, here's one. The knowledge you need is available for free online, but you don't spend time to learn it. So many of you have heard the story, but when the, in 2008, 2009, when the market crashed and I was a consultant at the time and everybody who used to hire me got laid off their jobs and therefore I didn't have a job. <laughs> I trained myself how to make video and I had learned it long ago before it was digital. I didn't really know how to edit video in the digital world. And so I Googled it. I Googled it. I started a video company and I taught myself to edit and I hired somebody to do the camera work. And together we cobbled together a little company that ended up grow growing into many people that flourished until 
uh, crappy childhood fairy took off and I let that business go and handed it off to one of my colleagues and now I do this. But my, my experience editing video has always been such a feather in my cap. I have, you know, you'll never be sorry you know how to edit a video, especially if you do what I do. All right, here's one. You live buried in debt and because of the debt, you can't make changes. So a friend of mine said this to me in my 20s and said, I think I know why people go into debt. They do it so that they, you know, they don't have any choices. And I thought that's preposterous. You know, it's, I was in debt at the time. I was in debt because I couldn't pay it off. But the thing is, back in my day, they didn't give you a credit card the minute you were born. I think I was like 29 or something when I finally got a credit card and I lived all that time I had some student debt, I paid it off. I got this credit card with a $400 limit and then it was always at a $400 limit. Like I made this mental adjustment. And so always in my mind, it's like, well, I'd really like to take this trip, but I can't till I pay off my credit card. And it's kind of like what I said about clothes. I'd really like to have decent clothes, but I can't until I lose 20 pounds. It's the same thing. It's like putting into the future. It's taking yourself and distancing yourself from the future. So either, you know, whether it's clothes or debt, either you accept things the way they are and go ahead and be happy anyway, or you solve the problem so that you can follow through on this plan you have to pay off the debt and then take the trip. But holding that debt right there, it's always like this little bookmark or a doorstop. You know, you just can't, you can't open the door. You can't go where you're trying to go. All right, here's one. You don't get medical checkups and you don't get your teeth cleaned regularly. That's a big one. I'm always trying to encourage people with CPTSD that that's a concrete form of self-neglect that can cause real problems. And um, then I want to talk about this last category, and I was trying to think of what to call it, but let's call it suppression of joy and growth. Um, so here's one that I relate to, and it's your living space has nothing beautiful. There's, not, there's no art, or you have a yard or a porch or a balcony, but you don't have any plants on it. All right. Having a beautiful space is a way that you commit to your life, that you commit to having the life that you love. Now, if you really don't care about art or flowers or anything like that, okay, fine. I bet you have your equivalent thing about making your space nice and treating yourself like a proper adult who has proper things, proper furniture, proper silverware, <laughs> proper bras and underwear, right? <laughs> but to allow yourself to really blossom as a person who has what you need, all right? Here's one. You'd like to have a pet, but you don't get a pet. And I think I'm throwing that in because I really want a dog. And I'm not getting a dog right now because I travel so much to do live shows. And I haven't figured that out yet, but I really want a pet. And um, I think that having a dog again in my life is gonna be a really happy thing. And I'm having to like delay happiness on that, but it's worth it because I get to travel and see you. <laughs> Here's one. You feel vaguely resentful around people who are happy or accomplished. Now, this is something we talked about in a video not that long ago. What is it about people who aren't screwed up or traumatized that makes us so uncomfortable around them? And as one person pointed out, and I think this is right, it's shame, right? Shame comes up around people who are okay. And we begin to compare ourselves to them, even though they're probably not comparing themselves to us. We're doing it for them and then pulling away from them. So we end up with like envy, resentment, avoidance around people who have fun um, opportunities, you know, joy to bring into our lives, great people. And that's one of my regrets is some of the wonderful people I've crossed paths with 
who I allowed that friendship to just slip away because I just, I don't know, I felt resentful or envious of how successful they were or how beautiful or how kind. So do you recognize any of these forms of self-suppression in yourself? The solution is to begin expressing who you are. And I understand quite well how that can be tricky when you grow up with abuse and neglect because you might have a prickly side, you might have a difficult side, you might have a little bit of issue with emotional dysregulation where you lash out when stuff gets stressful, people trigger you. So when people say, hey, just be your true self, I know, I know as few others can understand, you know, how risky it is to just be yourself. So it's a becoming yourself is a two-part thing. It's not just letting your true personality and thoughts hang out. It's not just that. Your true self also has all kinds of values, um, consideration, restraint at times, um, thoughtfulness, strategic behavior. Like that's part of you too. And they need to come up together where you think to yourself, do I need to mouth off to this other driver right now? Is that necessary to be my real self? Or is my real self also somebody who can be patient about somebody who cut me off in traffic, who can hold my tongue, who can go use my tools to go release that stress before it gets all stuck inside me and turns me into an angry serrated knife, as my meditation teacher used to call me, a serrated knife. So I don't wanna be that person. My real self is not that. That layer, that angry layer, was a byproduct of my trauma. And I'm healing that, and you can too. So the solution isn't just running around screaming at people about whatever we feel or things like that. The solution is self-awareness, right? The solution is self-expression, balanced, self-awareness, self-expression. So people with CPTSD, when you ask what they really want in life, quite often they can't tell you. The question brings up grief and anxiety, like, I don't know, I'll never get it anyway. But it's good to know what you want. It's good to write it down. And discovering that can be a process. A lot of people who come into my programs, I go, write down your wildest dreams of what you really want. And a lot of people will whisper to each other, is it just me? I, like, I can't, I can't even articulate it. Give it a little time. <laughs> Start writing down what you know about it. Let it be vague at first. You express yourself with who you are, how you present yourself, what you say, and what you become in life. And that's what healing looks like. And as you heal, you do that a little bit. And I trust me, you're going to just get all effed up in your head. Like, why did I say that? I shouldn't have. I just blurted out something. Now everybody thinks I'm an idiot. This is part of healing. This is part of it. So gradual, incremental experimentation, it always involves some fumbling, all right? It always involves some failure. And if you've lived your life in fear of criticism, because that's how it all started for you, you're going to need support. You're going to need perseverance to just keep going one foot in front of the other, becoming your real self, expressing yourself. So this is what you would have been doing as a child if you ha would have been free to be yourself and supported to learn how to be yourself. Now, maybe there's a little developmental delay there, but now is your time. You're going to need tools. You're going to need like, you know, books, videos, courses to guide you. You're using a tool right now watching this video, so that's great. You'll need support from actual people, maybe friends you already know or friends that you meet because they're in little pockets where people work on themselves, maybe in a 12-step fellowship or a support group, um, maybe in my membership program. If you're already in that or you're interested in it, check it out. If you're a self-suppressor, it's like I'm telling you something horrible. You're going to have to deal with people. <laughs> That's impossible, you're thinking. But it's actually quite nice if you can go slowly. 
and it's necessary because if you're left to your own device, honestly, you're very likely to fall back into self-suppression, justifying that suppression and playing small. So if you want a really gentle way to get started to try to handle the feelings that come up when you expand your comfort zone like that, you can try my daily practice techniques. That's why I'm always talking about them. They really help with that. It's kind of like opening a window on a room that's gotten stuffy and steamy with cruddy thoughts and feelings. It lets fresh air in. It lets the bad stuff out. And sometimes it makes a space for a happy thought to come in that leads you to your next step. You have a little, an idea, you know, an inspiration. I know, I know what I can do next. Have you ever had the experience where you know you should do something like go to work on time or put the laundry away or finish a creative project or brush your teeth before bed, but you just couldn't do it? Everybody procrastinates sometimes, but for people who experienced abuse and neglect in childhood, procrastinating can take over your life. It can hold you back. It can make you depressed that you're stuck day after day in the same old rut like a paralysis. Now, what is that? I've had this happen. I've spent months at a time in this place before, and I'll tell you, it is so demoralizing when it's happening to know that you're here in the world to do good, but something in you is not letting you do it. What causes it? I'll tell you, and I'll show you how you can take steps today to change. Okay, so the problem with procrastination is that it sabotages your will your intentions, right? And I call this state paralysis because you literally find yourself unable to take positive action on your own behalf. And this can be in little day-to-day -day things like browsing the internet when you have work to do or in big things that affect lots of people in important ways like not getting around to mailing the utility bill and leaving the whole family without electricity. Now, that used to happen in the home where I grew up. You can also procrastinate to the degree that you ruin your relationship, your career, your integrity, and your health. And in fact, we've all flaked out on our good intentions in most of these areas at least once, right? So what's going on when we can't act? Honestly, I think that doing things, committing ourselves, spending energy, creating something out of nothing, the reason we put it off is because it's not really a big thing. It's really simple. It's because it's hard. That's why it's hard. One of the great joys of my life is in publishing videos like this one, right? And then reading all the comments and discussions that you guys contribute. I love doing this. If publishing videos is my joy and it's how my family also earns its income. Then how come I spend days when I'm supposed to be preparing these videos and planning and researching and writing and getting the intro right and shooting them. It's like torture for me. I'm, I'm dying of avoidance during those days. And because making these videos takes days of preparation, really, like it's about six to eight hours per video of <laughs> just like focused creative work, that kind of work that's hard where you're making something out of nothing. Well, when it's time to plan the content, oh my gosh, I just get so interested in, you know, cleaning out the silverware drawer, combing the cat. I've done both of those things today. Finally, I'm making this video, right? And it makes no sense because releasing these videos makes me happy. But doing the work that leads up to that moment is just hard work. That's all. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing that complicated. It's just hard. 
I want so bad when I'm having to like plan a video. I just like, I get this huge desire. I just want to lay down. I want to watch, you know, Hulu, but just like you, if I give into that all the time, my life is never going to go anywhere. So lying around, it sounds great. Uh, it's a nice fantasy that it's going to make everything better, but in reality, it's totally depressing. So what makes me happy is sticking to my intention to create videos, even when it's hard. I make good videos. I'm happy with them. Well, I make duds sometimes, but being engaged in creating and sharing and serving people in the world is what makes me tick. Now, procrastinating is a very weak solution that attempts to solve the problem of stress. It's stress, right? Stress is a problem and it can make it seem like any minute now, we're going to get all this energy and focus. Like I'll procrastinate now and then boom, you know, like a grenade, I'm going to explode with energy. I always think I wish there was like the creative version of the defibrillator. You know, those things they put on a person's chest when their heart stops and they jolt the heart back into beating. I always think like, what's the thing that's going to jolt me back into work and like get me back to the desk. <laughs> and there is no magic thing. It's just like, no matter how I feel about it, it's getting up and walking over and then sitting down in my chair here and doing it. So another piece of that fantasy is the, is the delusion that procrastinating is self-care. But is it? No, <laughs> no. Resting might be self-care, but procrastinating is not self-care. It's just like the worst waste of time. It doesn't de-stress you. It causes stress. For people with childhood PTSD, especially when there's a lot of unhealed stuff, you're in a state of stress pretty much all the time. So everything is hard and that is the vicious cycle. Stress makes things hard. So you avoid tasks, which makes you more stress, which prompts you to avoid tasks even more. And there it is. People who don't have childhood PTSD have no idea how much work it is for some of us to do ordinary things. It's exhausting and stressful just being in the world sometimes, right? People are stressful. Going out of the house is stressful. Sticking to a schedule is stressful. Expressing yourself is stressful. And hearing other people's opinions when you disagree with them, that can be stressful too. And making money, of course, is stressful. But you know what's more stressful? Not doing all of these things. And that's why when you feel overwhelmed and stressed, the solution isn't always to just retreat and give yourself permission to procrastinate. Sometimes the best way to calm stress is to just face right into it and take the chaos of all those unfinished tasks and the heap of to-do items and forgotten emails and unfinished projects and just get to work on them one at a time. You might want to stop thinking about stress and overwhelm to stop telling yourself that the solution is to avoid everything that's stressful for you. Just even like, just stop even labeling it stress. Just look at it as like, this is life. I'm alive. I'm doing the things that are part of my life. Because in the end, the path of least resistance is to just do the things, just do them anyway. That's how they get easier. You're making order out of chaos and it feels good. It feels inspiring. And that's how you get happier. So how do you get started? You get the urge. Sometimes once you feel ready to just run out there and just do it all right. Do you ever get that? That is such a childhood PTSD thing to go from, I can't do anything to just like, I'm going to do everything. And there are times when it doesn't make sense to just run out there and go for it and force yourself to tackle your list in a day. I don't want to discourage you if you've got that positive energy, but what can happen is 
you make a list of 20 or 40 or 100 things. You start on the first thing and then you sort of expand it to the first 10 things and you're kind of doing them all at once and running around. And next thing you know, it's dysregulating you because you're tired and you're, you know, you're trying to juggle too much and you can't really like keep order of your, of your thoughts. You're just like, go, 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 go. And then you fall back into procrastination. So taking action at a good pace, a healthy pace, it's like a muscle. You can start to work it out slowly, just a little at a time at first, and then you get stronger. And whether you do a little at a time or go on a cleaning binge today, I'll tell you what the solution is not. The solution is not to give up on yourself. Don't identify with the trauma and mistake paralysis and giving up for being good to yourself. When you let yourself down, your worst behaviors will start just coming up. Now, I am aware that some people are like workaholics. So I don't want you to take this advice. And usually it's not the workaholics who would be writing me about this. It's people who are concerned about the workaholics going, but what about workaholism? It's not always good to keep going. And of course, everything can be done on the extreme, but you know who I'm talking to, you know who you are, it's the procrastinators, all right? When you let yourself down, your worst behaviors will start coming up. When you fall short of your own goals, you know what your CPTSD wants to do? It wants to find someone to blame. Is it gonna blame you? Is it gonna blame him, her, your parents, society, right? It starts to churn. And you start having random thoughts about how people are against you or you're going over and over some harm done to you in the past. If that's happening when you're trying to take action, check in with yourself. Ask yourself, is there something that I'm having trouble handling right now? Am I avoiding something? Um, am I actually angry at myself for not following through on what I need to be doing? And by the way, if you're not sure if complex PTSD is the thing that drives some of your self-defeating actions like this, you can take a quiz I developed and it's, it's right down in the description section. It's in the very top row. You'll see it right under the video. You can take that quiz and I will send you a list of really common symptoms of CPTSD and you can check and see if they apply to you. Your strength lies in action, action taken in right proportion to your capacity. So don't wait until it feels right for you to start brushing your teeth, all right? Just take that one step and just brush your teeth. Even if you're tired, just for practice, just to stretch yourself. Then the next day you can do the laundry. And if you're still feeling good, you can reply to emails that people wrote you weeks ago, but that you never answered. You can schedule a haircut. You can pop into the gym that you pay for all the time, but you haven't been to in three months, all right? You can review your credit card bill for all the monthly subscriptions you forgot you're paying and see if there's any you can remove. You know the good actions that you need to be taking next. You may have to push yourself, not like a maniac, but some every day. You know that saying that you hear sometimes, don't be a human doing, be a human being. Well, that's a good sentiment. Having grown up in a commune, I'm always a little bit like skeptical of stuff like that. And the reason is because doing and being are both really important, all right? That, that like criticism of like doing, having something wrong with it, no. Doing and being, both important. And doing is how we earn a living and it's how we express ourselves. And how are you gonna become fully yourself if you don't do things? It's not just the thing that you get done. It's the momentum that you build from just doing anything at all. And the more you're taking action, the easier it becomes and the more natural it feels to keep taking action.
I procrastinated for years on the idea for Crappy Childhood Fairy. It was on my mind for two decades. I mean, it wasn't totally formed yet. I hadn't learned everything I needed to learn really to be ready, but it was on my mind. And I didn't have the inner power to do anything about it. So eventually I did. I'm so glad. And the thing that launched me into action was I signed up for an expensive seminar about how to share your own life story as a way to teach others, like online. And I wanted to do this thing. It just seemed like this huge amount of money and I was terrified to do it. And what if I actually did the, you know, launched it, this started as a blog. And what if I did that and I got judged? Well, I did a little bit. <laughs> what if my work was bad? It is sometimes. What if I was successful and then I was committed to always having to work hard on it? That is kind of what happened, but I don't have to work hard. I like to work hard. I, I do procrastinate sometimes. It comes from the exact same place as anybody's procrastination. I just have a lack of power to do what I intend. But that was the big fear is that I'd get stuck. I'd, I'd have to be in action all the time and I'd have no escape. And so I find that I have more confidence in my ability to really step up and work hard if I can periodically just like take time away, lie down, not for too long, not that big like time waster lie down, but just go, hey, I can take a break anytime I want. I don't have to fear this. I don't have to be afraid to make a commitment. I'll talk about this in another video sometime, but making commitments is where life starts to get really like rich. So, so that's a lot what we're talking about when we take action. Some of that is just making a commitment to start a new project. And if you start the new project, I mean, let's say you open a, a shop, right? Well, now you got to go to work every day at the shop. And that's all it is. It's hard. You know, you can just foresee like, even when I'm sad, even when I'm dysregulated, I'm going to have to go. But I really cannot emphasize enough that while that is stressful, it is so much more stressful to not take that action, to not open that shop when that's what you wanted to do. Imagine if I never did the crappy childhood fairy, just because I was afraid it would involve work. Part of me would love to lay around and just watch TV. There's so much great TV out there, you know, and it seems like unlimited TV would really be nice, but most of us know what that really feels like, right? It feels terrible. Your life passes you by. It feels like it's passing you by because it is passing you by. You're not being you. You're not doing what you're meant to be doing. And what you're meant to be doing is really the only thing that's ever going to make you feel happy and fulfilled and have that feeling like, I lived well today. This was a good day. It was worthwhile. I lived my life. And for me, the things that make me feel that way are like connecting well with my family and, and people close to me and a little bit every day of that. Also to go be outside and walk around. Like I go take a walk outside. I feel like, yeah, I lived my day. And doing work that I know is making a difference in people's lives. That makes a good day. I like those days. And I used to feel envious of people who build roads for example, I don't know why roads, but you know, you get stuck in traffic and there's like road work there and people are working. And I used to think, God, they're so lucky. They go home at night and they're like, you know, today I built a hundred feet of road <laughs> and it's a real thing. And they did it and they know that they had it. And I often had work that it was a little less tangible, um, like, you know, work online, working in offices. And I didn't have that satisfaction, but really the road is not what would have done it for me. It's doing what I was made to do. And finally I'm doing it. And it is so fun. It's so fun to, to do the thing that you were meant to do. I knew it. I knew it. I saw that seminar. I paid the money. I went and it was a lot of money and it was four days in a corporate hotel. Boy, that added up. 
And then on the third day, I got stomach flu. I couldn't even go to the fourth day. <laughs> it was kind of rough, but I started. And that was the day that the feeling that life was passing me by like went away. I started and I was using my gifts. I was on my way and I was, had to, to make use of all that money I spent on the seminar. I felt like I had to follow up and like make this blog. The blog then turned into the videos. The videos turned into the YouTube channel. Then there were courses. Now there's a membership and all that. It just grew and grew and it's just kind of carrying me along in uh, a thing that I had a vague sense that I wanted to do, but I couldn't even see it until I was kind of walking through the paces of it. And to this day, like, I don't know exactly where it's going. I just keep taking action. I keep taking action, try to show up for it. It can be hard, but never as hard as it would have been if I knew that I could create crappy childhood fairy, but I didn't make the effort. And that's why it feels like life is passing you by when you can't act because time is ticking and the world is just waiting for you to step up and take your true place in it. It's time, okay? It's time for you to do that. You can do that by taking action. You can do it with one, you can do it with a big burst of action, but I think it's a little more sustainable if you take small, consistent actions. Just take some every day, get them like worked into your routine because they will get you there too. They give you a little breather though between actions so that you can, you know, kind of go through your CPTSD dysregulation, get re-regulated, come back, equilibrate. Do you know that word? That means like to get things balanced um, so that you can handle the stress that life gives you each time you put yourself out there. That's what's scary. When you take action and you start pursuing what you really want, you're putting yourself out there. And so when you get criticized and you will, you know, you just will and that's okay. When you are very clear about what you're trying to do, it hurts less. It doesn't like stop you in your tracks like it used to. So you need that strength, small actions, taken consistently, dealing with what happens, equilibrating. And it's like super vitamins for childhood PTSD. If you were constrained from letting your light shine, your spirit is going to love doing this, these small actions. You're getting somewhere and accomplishment feels really good. That's what you were held back from with your CPTSD. When you keep taking those small actions, does success always follow? No, not always. But what does follow is adventure, the adventure of your life. You're in the game, all right? You're in the soup, as my mom used to say. <laughs> you may or may not reach the goal. You may not even want the goal by the time you get there, but the act of taking those steps will increase your aliveness and open you up to life in all kinds of ways that you didn't even expect, all right? You're open for business. Your strength is action. Everybody does things sometimes that they know create problems and that get in the way of the good things they're trying to do in their lives. And I call these self-defeating behaviors. Things like losing your temper at work or flaking out on people who count on you or overeating or staying in a bad relationship that's grinding you down. They're just a few examples of self-defeating behaviors. Now, if you never did these things, your life would be better, but the reason you do them anyway is usually because of an emotion. I talk about this in my Healing Childhood PTSD course, how there's a trigger, an outside event, that sets off a very strong emotion, and the emotion unleashes the behavior that you don't want to do. So trigger, emotion, self-defeating behavior. 
Now, triggers are going to happen. A lot of people try to make triggers go away, but the triggers are caused by, you know, the world. <laughs> it's other people. It could be a loud noise. It could be that someone criticized you or rejected you or ignored you. It could be that you felt embarrassed about something. Anything could be a trigger, but the trouble is you can't really control whether triggers happen. They happen. They're outside of you. If you only focus on triggers at the beginning of the sequence that leads to your own self-defeating behaviors down the line, you're just running around spending all your time trying to make other people comply with what you want. So, you know, that's where you get people who are like, don't talk about that around me. Don't ever be late with me. You, can, you can't really control other people like this. You can ask, we, you know, we talk about this. You can ask people, but you can't really make the world stop triggering you. If you have triggers, it's going to happen. If you try to control people, they'll push you away and then your triggers get worse, right? So it's not a good way to control your own behaviors is trying to control other people and whether they trigger you. Instead, you'll have a much better time focusing on your emotional response to triggers. If you recognize when you're going into one of the emotions that I call the big three, the ones that put you on a slippery slope towards self-defeating behaviors, then you buy yourself some time to actually prevent the behavior that tends to follow. Or you can minimize it at least. Maybe it's smaller, maybe it's less often. So you focus on the big three emotions. All right, so what are the big three? They are feeling overwhelmed, feeling lonely, and feeling fearful. Now, everyone feels these feelings sometimes, but if you've done something you regret, chances are you were feeling overwhelmed, lonely, or fearful. Now, you're probably wondering about anger, and yes, it's definitely there, but I see it as a secondary emotion that rides in on the other core emotions of feeling overwhelmed or alone or scared. And I'll talk about that in a minute. So strong negative emotions are initiated by a trigger and they result in a behavior. Something happens, the feeling floods you and you feel, you know, maybe numb, like you flew out of your body or you feel a big rush of adrenaline and your heart's pounding, or you get hit with a sudden rush of emotion. And this can be scary because you know on some level you're about to self-sabotage, but it's really hard to do anything about it at that point because the strength of the emotion and the need to express it just feel like too, too big to stop. Have you ever had that happen? There's a trigger and a huge negative emotion wells up and then bleh, you say or do something that hurts your relationships. This is a terrible cycle, very simple really, that allows past trauma to turn into ongoing struggles in your life. Trigger, emotion, behavior, trigger, emotion, behavior. Let's go back to those three troublesome emotions, feeling overwhelmed, feeling alone, and feeling fearful, all right? So everybody has them. In non-traumatized people, the feelings go up and then they gradually come back down. So the feelings can be processed and if there's some action that needs to be taken, they can take time to figure out what that's going to be. They calm down, then they can take sensible action. All right, but with childhood PTSD, these feelings of fear and loneliness and overwhelm can just go through the roof and they keep rising. Have you had that happen? And this is part of what's called emotional dysregulation. If you have this, it's not your fault, but the problems it causes are now yours to deal with. 
So emotional dysregulation can be like drowning, like, like having the air sucked out of you. And it can lead to those secondary emotional reactions like rage and panic. And it can be hard to, to bring the emotions back to an acceptable size, a size that doesn't terrify people around you and cause you to get fired, right? That extra strong factor in your emotions is because your nervous system is having a stress response. And with CPTSD, you might call it like a overreactive stress response, a dysregulated response to stress. So if you take a brain scan of someone who's calm and mentally regulated, you'll see lines flowing together in, you know, kind of a parallel fashion from different parts of the brain. But when you're triggered and your brain becomes dysregulated, those lines, they start going in a zaggy pattern. And similarly, the variability of your heart rate, you know, which goes like this, it goes out of sync with your breathing, which normally rises and falls with your heart rate, but they go out of sync. And that's what it feels like when you're panicky, you know, uh, getting discombobulated, you overreact to something stressful and can't seem to get a grip on the reaction. Your mind is all over the place. Your emotions go higher and higher till they feel unbearable. And this is when very bad things can happen because you might feel this sense that oh, things are dire. That's what your nervous system is telling you. Well, now it has to happen now, it's urgent. You have to yell, you have to feel like you're you know, doing something about the problem or else you're gonna explode or you have to beg the person who's leaving you, please don't leave because it feels like you will die. Trauma is coloring your perception here, isn't it? When you're feeling this overwhelmed and this terrified or this alone, your negative impulses kick in to temporarily feel like a fix. So there are three negative impulses that set off self-defeating behavior and they connect roughly to the negative emotions that we just talked about that get triggered in childhood PTSD. So overwhelm will tend to go into the urge to escape and aloneness becomes an impulse to cling, to hold on. And fearfulness becomes an impulse to control. So escape, cling, control. And if you're like most people, you probably have one of these that's your dominant impulse when you're under stress, but most of us have all three in some measure, escape, cling, control. And this is tough because the behaviors that get triggered by these impulses are where 80% of the damage from childhood PTSD take place. It's not all from what happened to us in the past. It's not from the triggers or the feeling we're experiencing per se, but it's from our behavior right now in response to that and the impulses that drive us into that behavior. And this is not easy to face, I know that. It feels safer sometimes to focus on what happened, you know, what other people did, how sick they were. And compared to facing our own self-defeating behaviors, talking about other people and the past and feelings, it's, that's, you know, that's kind of like a comfort zone, you know, it's out here. But your own actions is where it totally matters now. What will you do to either hurt your life or change your life for the better? And a lot of people with childhood PTSD instinctively know this is the big question, but we lack insight about, you know, what exactly is the problem? And for you to develop good discernment about that, um, you know, what's the problem, what needs to happen to change it, you will need a safe way to look at what even is a self-defeating behavior, okay? So no pressure to change anything right this second as you watch this video, but I'm gonna share with you my list 
of common self-defeating behaviors. There are, you know, plenty. You don't even, you don't have to take notes on this. I will give you a link at the end of this video for a PDF that you can download and use at your own pace and take notes on, you know, and see how you're doing with your self-defeating behaviors. So here are some common self-defeating behaviors for people with childhood PTSD. Number one is black and white thinking. Traumatized people are often attracted to extreme views and groups and authority figures. Now, maybe you are outraged about current events, and I'm sure you have your reasons, but if it's consuming you, it could be a self-defeating behavior. You might be arguing with people about your opinions and it gets too heated and it's damaging relationships, it's damaging your reputation, or you might find yourself tangled up with mentors or friends who dominate you. Uh, there's that extreme like out of proportion power dynamic. Maybe you're the dominant person. Maybe you're putting people into hard categories of these people good, those people bad, and you're cutting off contact with people outside the people you consider good. Those would be examples of black and white thinking. Number two is neglect of your body. Now money could be why you have just one pair of beat up sneakers. I've been, I've, I've had just one pair of sneakers before, one coat, one pair of sneakers, rainy season, always wet, big holes in them. I didn't have a lot of money at that time. That was money. But you might have also not been taking care of yourself. That's another reason why you might be kind of um, disheveled in tatters. Maybe you haven't been to the dentist in years. For a lot of people with childhood PTSD, you know, it's a little more than just being poor. You're suppressed or diminished in the clothes you wear. You're suppressed or diminished in your ability to do just basic hygiene or to exercise. Something traumatized people do is avoid doctors and preventive care sometimes. Things have to get really bad before you deal with it. And sometimes for some people, it's too late at that point. All right. Number three self-defeating behavior is addictive use of food. And this includes everything from carrying a lot of extra weight to eating disorders to, you know, having a love affair with sweets and high carbohydrate foods that make you feel exhausted because you ate them. These foods can feel really calming for a moment when you're dysregulated, but in the long run, they make you more dysregulated. So if it gets to the point that it's making you sick or brain fogged or exhausted, it's a self-defeating behavior. Okay. Number four is the addictive use of media and entertainment. <laughs> it seems like almost everyone has this problem now watching too much TV or browsing the internet or playing games so much that you're not getting enough sleep or you're losing your daily routine or your job or face-to-face -face connection with people, or it's eating up your funds. That is a self-defeating behavior. Number five is dishonesty. And this includes things like exaggerating, hiding important personal truths or preferences, lying, stealing, cheating on your significant other, tax evasion, any kind of illegal activity. All right, number six is work problems. And in that category, I would put staying stuck in a job you hate, not working when you could work and should work, overworking or having more than your share of conflicts with employers and coworkers, things like suing or getting sued or acting in a way that makes coworkers feel scared of you or humiliated. All right, that's not uncommon with childhood PTSD. Number seven self-defeating behavior, blame. 
And this includes having a hard time seeing your own role in problems. It's victim thinking, it's bitterness, it's casually saying things about other people that hurt their reputation, which is slander. It's also called calumny. That's when you say things with the express purpose of harming someone's reputation. It's very wrong. Believing that all your problems are because of you know, racism or because of sexism or foreigners or one or another political party or economic system. A lot of people who think they are above all of this and have the answers are having a trauma reaction. That's, you know, they're like literally thinking they're above others, <laughs> up and above. And they're quick to call out other people's shortcomings and declare the solution. You know, we have to do more to make people change the way I think they should be, that kind of thing, when they often have glaring problems of their own. All right, number eight is numbing with substances like alcohol or drugs. How much is too much? You are gonna have to be the judge of that. But if it's interfering with your energy level, your focus, your relationships, your finances, it's probably too much, okay? Number nine is irritability. Maybe you get angry sometimes for no reason, or you get into arguments more than your share. You get road rage. You yell at the TV. <laughs> I have a relative who once shot a gun at the TV, ruined the TV by shooting it. It was so mad about something. <laughs> Um, you might see comments online that are so hostile. It's just, you know, it's raging. Or customer service calls. Do you ever get triggered by those where you're getting the runaround or you're even losing your temper at people face to face? In the extreme, this can include like a total rage attack that's like, you know, life-threatening. It can lead to violence. Number 10 is an attraction to troubled partners and friends. People who were abused or neglected as children are, are often attracted to people. They feel more comfortable with people who were themselves traumatized, including people who have high levels of drama and addictions and conflict and serious legal and financial problems. All right, it's a self-defeating behavior to glom onto that. Number 11, unfulfilling romantic life. Now, maybe you avoid dating anyone at all, even though you haven't made a decision to end that part of your life, or you stay in bad relationships where there's no trust or no love. You may be telling yourself you do this to avoid getting hurt, but it borders into a form of romantic anorexia. Have you heard of that? Social, sexual, emotional, romantic anorexia and avoidance of those things. That brings me to number 12, which is the abuse of your sexuality. And this can include an overly sexualized appearance or being inappropriately seductive. Um, as a result of your upbringing, you may even have a distorted sense of the messages that you're sending with your behavior and poorly developed boundaries. That is so common. Maybe you have affairs that would badly hurt other people if they knew, or you generally feel humiliated by how you're treated and you keep seeking out that person anyway, you know, as if you can set it right somehow, if you could make contact or get them to hear you, or you feel ashamed of your own behavior and you can't stop it. That's a self-defeating behavior. Number 13 is fantasy. And I know, you know, that that fantasy is considered like a positive thing, but it can also be a self-defeating behavior. And that includes romantic obsession, including limerence. That's obsessing on someone who can't be with you or you know who's rejected you or maybe isn't even in your life, but it's gotten to the point that you're not living your life or connecting with people because you're very attached to this idea of somebody else maybe searching online you know, for possible signs that they feel the same way about you. Mm. Fantasy can also be about money, 
and career success where the fantasy is so consuming that it takes the place of any actual work or action steps that would help you get where you want to be. And in the extreme, it can go so far as stalking or delusional thinking. Number 14 is avoidance. And this symptom is so common among people who were traumatized as kids. It can be overt when a person avoids connecting with people um, or, or accepting responsibility or, or participating in groups. But it can also take the form of covert avoidance. I made that word up and it's for when a person appears to be, you know, that you might be married, you might go to a job and hang out with everybody, you go to parties, but you never really connect with people. And there's, there's like a big gap in terms of accountability and commitment to them. So that's covert avoidance. And then this is kind of where avoidance takes the form of social, sexual, and emotional anorexia. All right, debting. While financial hardship can fall on anyone and can and has, and financial stability isn't always guaranteed, debt can become a self-defeating behavior when you're living beyond your means to pay for a place to live and transportation and clothes and recreation. Trauma can interfere with your ability to consistently earn a living or to accurately gauge, like, how big a threat is it if I spend down the available money I have this month? Like, like literally, there are brain changes for people who are traumatized that make it hard to assess the risk that that brings on. So you get this gambling-like behavior. And in some of its worst forms, debting can turn into a gambling addiction or an unsustainable get-rich-quick mentality, and it can lead to foreclosure and bankruptcy and ultimately homelessness. Number 16 is a habit of repeating traumatic patterns. And clinicians call this repetition compulsion, where you find yourself in a relationship with a partner or some friends who have similar dysfunctional behaviors to your parents. Now, I don't believe this is done intentionally. I don't think you're trying to recreate your childhood, but people with CPTSD can develop a blind spot around red flags and others that, you know, when I've done it, I've sort of experienced it as sort of like going blank and then marching right into the problem. It's not like a decision to have that problem. It's not conscious. And you cannot deny that we so often end up with people with problems that match the problems of our parents. So even when the signs are there, that someone you've allowed into your life is creating trouble, you may have a hard time setting up a boundary. And you'll experience this as a feeling of disappointment and surprise that, oh my gosh, once again, you're with someone who's sick and unavailable or dangerous or what have you, whatever your pattern is. And it can make you vulnerable to emotional hurt and physical and financial and social harm, right? You don't want troubled people in your life like that. You're trying to go somewhere good. So people who hurt you, you can consider them always a setback to your healing. Okay, so these are the main self-defeating behaviors. If you're ready to change, it helps to get acquainted with the list, identify maybe one problem you'd like to work on. Don't try to do a million things at once. Maybe don't even try to do two things at once, just one. And then find support to take positive actions toward changing it. Fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. Which of the four trauma reactions are you likely to go into when you go into a high stress social situation where people start to have disagreements with you? All right. Maybe you favor one type like fighting. That's kind of my MO. Or maybe you tend to go into like falling silent, into freezing, or you try to be really nice, fawning, or you just leave the party altogether. 
So one of the skills that's so handy for people who have childhood PTSD is to learn how to hang in there when you're having a disagreement with somebody. Disagreements are going to happen. Now, these days, disagreements can get very extreme. They can get toxic. And I'm not advocating that you hang in there and just let yourself be abused by anybody. But to be able to have a disagreement with somebody is actually an opportunity to have a friendship and to learn something and to become more tolerant of variation in people. And so I'm taping this uh, as we're entering into the holiday season. A lot of people are gonna be visiting their families or choosing not to visit their families, but hanging out with friends. And if you grew up in a house where there was a lot of discord, you might have a fear of conflict that's so great that it tends to really dysregulate you and trigger your CPTSD symptoms when you get around disagreement. That can really limit your, your freedom and your ability to, to enjoy yourself during the holidays or to have a job you like or to have friends who are actually fun. So I wanted to share with you some notes that I took long, long ago from a book that I read when I was 16 years old when I was trying to figure out how to do people because I wasn't very good at it. And this is the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. I know some of you are laughing. I remember when I saw the title, I just thought it was, I was so embarrassed and I read the book secretly. I put like paper over the cover and I didn't want my parents to know I was reading it. It, it was, um, I thought there was something foolish about trying to be better at having social skills, but there's nothing foolish about that at all. This book was written in 1936. It's still a perennial bestseller. It's um, incredibly helpful. If you read it, you know, of course you're going to hear dated stuff and weird stereotypes, but there's kernels of wisdom in here that tell you how to just sort of cut through problems and um, deal with life. And one of the big things here is disagreement. So apparently I took very careful notes on this section of the book <laughs> and I wanted to share with you because I think these are still good notes and these are still um, instructions I want to give myself. All right. So how to stop a disagreement from turning into an argument. One, welcome the disagreement. Be thankful to have this brought to your attention. So that's a big step up, right? From just running away from disagreement because it's so triggering. And that is what happens to so many of us with childhood PTSD is just being around people, let alone when there's some kind of disagreement or argument. It's so triggering that we basically, it's just not even worth it. And we end up isolating. So getting out there and hanging out and going to the wedding or going to have coffee with a friend or you know spending thanksgiving with some relatives all of that is good progress towards you reconnecting and learning to calm your triggers and as you know i have a whole bunch of courses that will help you do that i'm also going to follow up with a video here um, at the end of this video i will point you to another video i always do that over here i'll point you to a new video that is about how to do like ninja boundaries with tough tough home situations. So that will be here. But this video is about just how to handle disagreement in an elegant way. All right. So one, welcome the disagreement. Two, distrust your first impression. Usually first reaction is defensive, I wrote. Keep calm. <laughs> Isn't that true? The first reaction when somebody's disagreeing is to go, no, that's not true. No, I didn't say that. No. Uh, because again, because it's so threatening, a conflict for a person, especially who has CPTSD symptoms lurking under the surface, a conflict is so threatening, you, you kind of want to just like fight it, put a wall up and keep it out. Keep calm. Now, keeping calm is easier said than done for people with CPTSD, right? 
but it's a perfectly good direction to aim yourself in. Number three, control your temper. If I actually get into an argument with somebody where I lose my temper, it's going to cost me at least three days of being able to focus and do good work. The dysregulation is so intense. I like, it, it, like I might feel okay afterwards or I'll feel kind of numb after an argument. And then a whole bunch of emotions will come and a whole bunch of remorse. And then I'll wake up and go, I think I'm better now. And I just find like, I can't read more than a paragraph. I'm reading it over and over again. I'm sitting down to write something and I'm just procrastinating and I'm losing. I'm just losing everything good that I want to do. When I'm sitting with people, I can't be present. So obviously losing one's temper, there's a time and a place for it when you actually need to fight, but just losing it, losing it, let's just call it frivolously, where there's nothing to be gained by fighting, where it just happens and your emotions come up and you get all dysregulated. I'm just saying it's not worth it. You can get more out of an interaction and move forward faster in your life by containing that temper piece of it and staying with another aspect of facing a disagreement with somebody without losing your temper. Honestly, if you could never lose your temper, that's okay. The only time I can think to do it, I remember once when my son was a little baby on my hip and some neighbor who was on drugs came up and started screaming in my face. I screamed back in his face. That was a good use of my temper. <laughs> I was protecting my kid from somebody who was behaving dangerously. Other than that, there are really few examples. Yelling at my kids was never fruitful. Uh, always caused to apologize for losing my temper at them and, um, or anybody at all. Number four, listen first, let the other person talk and let them finish. Don't resist, defend, or debate. It raises barriers, build bridges of understanding, look for areas of agreement. All right. This is like, so like counterintuitive to me and how I grew up and how I see things. But when somebody is trying to tell you an opinion, you may already know they're wrong about something that happens, right? Like if you read a lot and people come up and they just tell you some talking point or whatever, go ahead, just go ahead, listen to them first, let them talk, let them finish what they're saying, and then don't resist, defend, or debate. Like, how can that be? How can we allow this to pass? But what we're doing here is building a bridge of understanding. And when you have a bridge of understanding, you, you will have the opportunity to express your point of view. You might, small chance, you might even influence how they see, how they see the issue. But most importantly, you're going to retain that connection with other people. That's so important. And I just want to remind you, I don't think I need to, but I just want to remind you that no matter if people disagree, we're still like, we're still one people and we all need to stay together. And those of us who are disconnected from other people suffer terribly, especially those of us with trauma. It injures our ability to connect with other people. It gives us a vulnerability that makes conflict something that we either avoid by running away or, or we turn into a fake person or we start yelling and ruin the relationship. None of that serves us. It doesn't serve anybody and it doesn't serve us. All right. Number five, be honest where you've been wrong. Say so. That's just good advice. Uh, I learned this when I used to hang out with people who go to AA. When you've been wrong, say so. <laughs> I remember that sounded radical to me, but you'd be surprised. Experiment with it. When you realize you were wrong about something, like immediately go in and say, oh, I see. I was wrong. Like if you can just say those words, it is so disarming to other people and they will usually soften a great deal if you can just say those words when you're wrong. And I would add that look for places where you're wrong. Be quick to give that to them. It makes you more trustworthy and safe if you can admit that. 
wouldn't you love it if people did it for you don't don't do this tit for tat you're not necessarily going to get it back yet but when you get good at this at all of these tips i'm giving you you're going to see that you have encountered other people in your life who are very good at this and you you didn't even realize that they were doing something artful you just you just felt safe you just felt safe and you maybe opened up to them all right number six promise to think over their ideas and consider them carefully and mean it they may be right <laughs> i love that promise to think over their ideas say yeah okay thank you all right let me think that over i'm going to really consider that i think you might be right can you imagine saying that to people with whom you disagree it's very comforting to them it alle it alleviates a lot of the frustration that they have in the conflict i know how much you would like to hear that from another person and again you probably won't you know these are what i'm saying here are very basic skills but hardly anybody uses them but trust me you getting good at it will tend to transform the kinds of relationships you have and bring more people in who are capable of this level of respectful conversation and disagreement and connection so it's you're going to win no matter what here number seven thank them sincerely for their interest think, think of them as good people who really want to help you huh okay that kind of speaks for itself but thank them for being interested enough to tell you yeah thank you for talking to me about that and when you think of them as people who really want to help you you come off that way to them and believe me that is how they see themselves a lot of times especially with cptsd we think people are out to get us we think they're out to shame us or trying to manipulate us and that is possible at times and if you if that's your judgment about a situation don't even worry about being elegant with these people <laughs> protect yourself but of course there are people you want to do better with think of them as people who really want to help you that is a level of trust that you may not have and the good thing about it is just because you extend that point of view towards somebody or that attitude towards somebody of trusting that there's somebody who really wants to help you if you're ever proven wrong whoop, you can have a boundary no problem okay number eight postpone action to give both sides time to think through the problem this one really gets into some of the tips I give all the time for conflict with CPTSD postpone any action to give both sides time to think through the problem suggest a meeting later that day or the next day when all the facts are brought to bear <laughs> and i would add when dysregulation has been brought back down and you can hear again and you can think again all right prepare for this conversation later in the day by asking could they be right or partly right so you ask yourself that also does my reaction relieve the problem or does it make it worse so does my reaction trying to convince them of something otherwise does it relieve the problem of disagreement or the pro or the world problem that you're disagreeing about or does it make it worse so if we're arguing about like the role of social media in driving division among people if i go in and i go no it does drive division among people you idiot <laughs> my reaction is making it worse right <laughs> So when I'm able to be patient and listen, I'm actually, I'm doing my one, one person part in making it better. And that's the only way we change these things is that enough people dedicate themselves to being more patient and open-minded towards other people, even if you don't change their mind towards their views. Also, will my reaction draw my opponent closer to me or drive them away? Will my reaction elevate the opinion of, that other good people have of me? And that's a good one. Um, I just remember once flying into, 
Well, I'd have to say a rage at the bank once. They had accidentally shared my bank account with somebody else in my family who should not have had access to my bank account. And I didn't know anything about it. I just discovered when I looked in there. And I was really mad. And the person I was talking to was probably kind of new and scared on the job and not very good at customer service. And I guess I didn't feel like they were giving me the appropriate, I'm so sorry, that should never happen. They were just like, ma'am, you're going to have to calm down. And if you've ever been told, ma'am, you have to calm down, you kind of know it's a, it's a, it can be very triggering to hear that. It can feel like a total invalidation of what you need. The worst thing about this thing and why it sticks in my memory and why it sort of goes down in history in my family is that my young son was with me at the bank. I think he was about six or something and he was mortified because I was yelling at somebody in the bank. So my six-year-old son had a good opinion of me and when he saw me lose my temper with a bank teller, his good opinion of me was hurt and that was devastating to me and so not worth it. And for the record, I did go back to the bank and to the person I yelled at later after I had um, used my tools, written my fears and resentments, meditated, talked to my friend, gotten straight, like what just happened there? What happened to me? And I went in and without making excuses, I just wholly apologized to her. And I did it where other people could hear because I'm sure that was um, a shaming experience for her. One of these days, I want to make a video about customer service trauma, how providing customer service or on the receiving end of customer service, we've all had trauma. And this is before I was Crabby Childhood Fairy, I, I, uh, two jobs before that, for years I was a consultant in customer service and I would go around and train teams on how to handle people who lose their temper. And it was actually a really wonderful job for me to learn some of this stuff that I needed to learn as well and I needed to embody. And I don't think I'd be here now if I hadn't had that experience. But what I learned on that job I could walk into a group of people who were totally bummed out and miserable that they had to go to a training and I'd say, so who here has had a terrible customer experience? Every hand would go up and I'd call on people and let them tell their stories and we'd give it like an hour and by, by the end of the hour everybody was so worked up and they were kind of resentful and then I would turn the tide and say, now who here has had an amazing customer experience that like made you cry, it was so beautiful and most of the hands went up and they began to tell those stories. And soon all the people who had hated coming to my training were loving the training and they were super receptive to hearing my tips on how to do this. So I think that was training for what I'm doing right now and even in this message. Um, we'll talk about that one day, customer service itself, what you can do on either end of it to, to bring it down so it doesn't turn into dysregulation or hurting other people. So we were talking about preparation for this talk that you would have with somebody when a disagreement has started to get kind of difficult. When you prepare to talk again, you say, you ask yourself after the things we've been talking about, will I win or lose? What price will I pay if I win? Okay. And if I'm quiet, will it blow over? So that's a really good question for those of us who freeze in the situation. If I'm quiet, will it actually blow over? And sometimes it won't. Sometimes the problem will persist and it requires that we speak up for ourselves. But if the problem will blow over if we're quiet, it is worth considering being quiet. Not because we're saints necessarily, but because we care about how we affect other people. And also because with the tendency to get dysregulated, it's not worth it. It's not worth being right or proving yourself right or, or you know, squeezing an apology out of another person if that's the price that you're gonna pay. It's not even worth it for you and it's certainly not great for everybody who has to hear it.
And finally, is this difficult situation an opportunity for me? And I'm just going to say, if you are actively working on your healing from childhood trauma, these conflicts, as long as there's no risk of violence or abuse, it's just a disagreement. It's something that you recognize as triggering and you'd like to do better. It's a fantastic opportunity. The stakes are actually very low. Usually you're not going to lose money. You're not going to get hurt. You're just going to get to practice these more gentle skills of listening and being open to somebody and staying connected with them while a disagreement is being discussed. So that was part of the preparation. Then you get together. This one I find kind of challenging, but it's here in the notes that I took when I read the book. When one person yells, the other person should listen. Okay. When I think about that, yes, they should listen if, because other, the alternative is to yell back is to like freeze or yell back. So listen, what I anticipate is for a lot of people listening to a yelling person is going to activate so much old trauma. It feels undoable. And I'm just going to say, use your judgment about that. All right. Um, my 10th thing was best way to get the best of an argument is to avoid it. <laughs> That's how you win an argument. Don't even have an argument. Don't argue. And I, and over, over my lifetime, I would just say, I've come to really understand the wisdom of that. There's so many better ways to work out peace and negotiate what's needed between people than arguing. Um, the next one is never try to make the other person wrong with a word or a look. Oh, I'm so sensitive to that. Just this morning, I said to my husband, I said, do you think you could yield a little bit about having the whole oven on Thanksgiving for this one thing you're making and causing other people to have to cook at another house? And he looked at me and he went, <laughs> I can't do it. I can't make my eyebrows do different things. But he made me wrong with a look like, how could I ask him for that? And you know what happened? I got defensive. I started wanting to make him wrong. And we did get that one worked out. It was so funny because right after we had that discussion, I saw this, it came up, it came into my face. It was like the best thing. So right away I sat down and I made this video, but don't try to make the other person wrong with a word or a look like, okay, or oh. all right. That's how we do it. You know how it feels when it's done to you. If you're going to try to prove anything, do it subtly. Okay. Uh, I, I take that to mean don't get in there and go, first of all, you're wrong because you're an idiot. Second of all, don't you know that on this date they did this and the amount of money was this and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> nobody wants to hear it. So you do it subtly. You do it subtly. Um, the second to the last point that I wrote down for myself here is teach as if they taught themselves. And that one has taken me years to really grasp. But when you tell people, when you tell them how to think about something, it has about this much impact. When you have an open discussion where they come to a conclusion themselves about how to do it, and very hopefully you will have agreement about what that is, right? Then they internalize it. They're open to it. They do their best at it. It's just a better way than just forcing on people what to do. The last point I wrote here was suggest you might be wrong and say, I frequently am. <laughs> this will never get you into trouble. So first of all, who among us is not frequently wrong? We are all frequently wrong and it's good to admit it. Even when you know you're right, say, well, I could be wrong. I often am. And that is a way that you create an opening and a humility that helps people bring their wall down and stay connected with you and keep talking to you about their point of view. And you still have the chance to learn. If you grew up neglected, hurt by your parents, 
not heard, not seen, chances are good that when you're under stress, you get emotionally dysregulated. Now this means your nervous system reacts to stressors with extra strong emotions. When most people would be hurt, you're devastated. When you fall in love, it feels enormous. And getting angry, unfortunately, for the people who love you can turn into rage. Emotional dysregulation is not exclusive to childhood PTSD, but it's a very common and very destructive symptom. And perhaps more than any other trauma symptom, it ruins relationships and kills dreams. But the good news is that healing is possible. My letter today is from a woman I'll call Penny, and she writes, Hi, Anna. I grew up in an extremely invalidating, abusive, and neglectful household. I've got a pencil. I'm going to circle things I want to come back to, but let's read through Penny's letter and see what's going on. She says, my parents were alcoholics, divorced 13 years ago, and I suspect my father is a narcissist and my mother is the definition of a histrionic personality. Every day was full of fighting and threats and my sister and I often took care of my mother. There were times when we had to force her to eat, help her get dressed, etc. And there were even times we had to hide from my father, staying in hotels and friends' houses and not going to school due to threats. I wanted to write you because I'm in a fairly new relationship. I'm 23, he's 25. We met a year and a half ago online, met in person a little over a year ago, and decided to start dating. The same month we decided to date, I moved in with him. I know that things moved very quickly. I have a history of intensely abusive relationships, and this is the first relationship I've been in that I can say is safe and mostly healthy. I feel like I'm incredibly toxic and hurtful to him when anything happens that I am not ready for, something unexpected or plans changing. I feel neglected or abandoned or invalidated even if my logical mind knows that it's nothing to start a fight over. He's very social and goes on trips with friends. We try our best to have open and healthy conversations, but this can only happen after I've had time and space to calm down. The problem is really when I initially start to feel hurt because I lash out and threaten to leave or tell him that he's not treating me well when that isn't what I want to do and he has only treated me well. He respects my boundaries, he cares about me deeply, he shows his love, and I feel valued and wanted for the first time in my life. I feel like I'm a terrible person and I'm desperately trying to be good. Usually I blow up before I can think to get space and that makes a small situation that could have just been me reading into something. It makes it turn into me letting out every negative thing in my head in those moments. I'm blaming him. I feel like I'm pushing him away. There is also, there is only so much someone can handle. And I really want to be part of his life and keep him in my life. I realize things moved very quickly, but I think we could have, we could have such a beautiful future together. If I can get a hold of myself, wait, I realize things moved very quickly, but I think we could have such a beautiful future together. If I can get a hold of myself, I haven't been in therapy for a year and a half now. And I'm finding it difficult to find one where I, and I'm finding it difficult to find a therapist where I am now. I moved across the country. 
Any advice at all would be so helpful because I feel like I'm ruining our relationship. Thank you. All right. Penny, I got your back. I think I can help. All right. So let's see what we have here. You grew up in an, in an invalidating, abusive, and neglectful household. Parents, alcoholic. Your dad, narcissist. Mom, definition of histrionics. That's super emotional. So it sounds like a really hard, horrible situation for a kid. Fighting, threats, had to hide, take care of your mom, over-parentified. Yeah, that'll do it. <laughs> that'll do it. And so I can just totally understand why you have emotional dysregulation. That is what's going on here, what you're describing. Like you're, you've been able to form a relationship that feels good. He feels like a really good, suitable guy for you. And your emotional dysregulation is, it just irrationally gets triggered. And you, for a, the period of time that you're emotionally dysregulated, the feelings are flying out of your head. I've been there. It's horrible. I know. And I promise you, there is a way to heal this. All right. So it's a new relationship, 23, you're 23, he's 25, met a year and a half ago online, then met in person a little over a year ago and decided to start dating in that same month you moved in. And I think you said you moved across the country. So I, if I'm putting this together right, when you decided to start dating him, you not only moved in with him, but you moved across the country. And you know, like I totally get how maybe this is going to work out anyway, it can, but that is such a CPTSD move. It's like somebody feels like a great fit and you want to spend more time with them. And if it's cross country that you're long distance dating, it's pretty hard to, you know, go on a second, third, fourth, fifth date. <laughs> so I see the logic in it, but also I just want to point out this puts you under a terrible amount of pressure. For a person who has emotional dysregulation, living together is hard. Living together with somebody you haven't had time to like really, really get to know. And, um, and you don't have, you know, living together is like a simulation of a committed relationship. There might be monogamy for being that's committed until one of you changes your mind. But I'm just saying like living together is a really, it's a strain. And, um, I, I think it's not for the faint of heart <laughs> when you don't know somebody because the I, the pressure is on. You can't get away from that person. A lot of what a person who gets emotionally dysregulated needs, emotionally or neurologically, is they need, you know, they need their own space. They need to pull away. So I like that he goes on trips with friends, that he has his own life. That sounds really healthy. That sounds appropriate. And he's 25. All of that is great. So everything that you're describing here is you get emotionally dysregulated and you've put yourself into the pressure cooker for it. So let's see if we can help you get back out of that. Um, you specifically said um, that you've been behaving in a toxic and hurtful way. You're worried it's going to drive him away. Um, you don't like it when you're not ready for something unexpected or plans change. That's a really typical trigger and you feel neglected or abandoned or invalidated. Also very normal trigger for a person who went through what you went through. So a trigger, you know, people say trigger, like it just means something that you don't like, but in the, with complex PTSD, it's something that triggers dysregulation. It changes your nervous system, a stimulus. And so that's, it's really normal that when something has a characteristic that that you had to cope with as a kid way over what you were capable of dealing with, that it's still as active, like a, like a third rail, you know, it's just, <laughs> so that feeling abandoned, feeling like things are changing. You do have great conversations and it works when you've had time and space to calm down time and space. That is a great insight, Penny. 
time and space. Now he respects your boundaries. He cares about you. He shows his love. I'm so happy you have that. I'm all for you not messing this up. All right. This is what I'm going to suggest to you. First of all, there's going to be a lot of tools I'm going to suggest to you. I'm going to suggest support. I suggest, I tell those things to everybody, you know, who's working on healing trauma. But in particular for you, Penny, I think it would be important for you to develop a life outside the couple, outside the home. And if that's not right now living somewhere else, I just really encourage you to find a way to spend time somewhere else. Now, one thing you can do, I know you probably don't have a lot of friends there, right? Maybe you told me that actually. You haven't been able to find a therapist. So that would be another good thing. You could find a therapist. Everybody needs friends. And when you move, it all becomes about this one person. And so when you're in distress in the, within the relationship, the temptation is enormous to try to, while you're dysregulated, talk it out. But see, when we're talking dysregulated, we're kind of, we're seeing things in a loopy way. We're seeing like, you made me feel like this. You need to fix it. I still feel terrible. I need you to fix it. And that's a terrible and unreasonable demand to put on somebody when we are emotionally dysregulated. They can't actually fix that. There's pretty much nothing they could say. And I know it's better like, if you're not arguing, it's better. If they're being loving, it's better. But if you have that trauma wound in you, it's going to find its way out no matter how good the relationship is, no matter how much he's careful not to set you off. In fact, you don't want him to have to be careful. You want to learn to calm your triggers and never fear. Like you can make tremendous progress very quickly if you prioritize this. So the first thing is the tools. Um, I have some very practical tools on how to spot dysregulation, emotional dysregulation, and how to very quickly re-regulate. You use emergency measures. And some of those have to do with like stomping your feet, separating, taking a time out, using um, physical exercises that cross over the midline of the body. And um, I'll, put a, I'll put a free download at the end of this video that you can access. Anybody watching this can access if you want to see what these are. It's just a series of emergency measures that you can do to re-regulate. But another thing you can do is um, I teach my daily practice. And this is for all the fearful and resentful thoughts. So if you think about like emotional distress, anything that's negative, we lump it into two just very general buckets, fear and resentment. And I know there's a lot of nuance and shades of color of the emotions in between there. But for this exercise, there's no need to do it. So I teach this exercise for how to release these feelings and then give your brain a rest and recover and come back to center again. And I do this twice a day. I depend on it. It's the whole thing that changed my life. And I'll be sure to put that a link to that at the end too. It's always down in the description section. The third thing that you need is support. So that's what I'm saying is not only do you need to get your life out of the house, but um, you need the support of people who are walking a path with you, who have a similar approach or mindset about what the problem is and what they're trying to do to heal. And the reason I say that is if you're struggling with emotional dysregulation and you talk to somebody who's not in any kind of healing for that and you go, I'm so freaked out. I'm so freaked out. Like he didn't understand. He made these plans and I felt so abandoned. A person like a civilian, they're going to go, oh my God, he abandoned you. That sounds like a terrible guy. You should leave. And they don't understand and their advice doesn't connect with what we're going through because they're, you know, they don't have that common knowledge about what you're talking about. 
And over and over again, have I paid the price for, you know, trying to talk about what's distressing me to people who don't walk the path with me. Um, it upsets them. It scares them. They're like, oh my gosh, I'm worried about you because I get very intense, right? When I'm dysregulated. And I think to um, an outsider, they would, they would just think, oh my gosh, this woman's falling apart. I'm totally not. I'm just in dysregulation. I'm working my way back out of it and give me 20 minutes and I'll be good. But if you talk to me when I'm in the middle of it, I do, I sound, I sound very, very angry, distressed, probably unreasonable. And so that's one of my boundaries is I try not to talk when I'm dysregulated, um, unless there's a very good reason to, I try to re-regulate myself and then talk and talk to those who are essential. So when you're in a conflict or you feel like you're, you, you, everything depends depending on you being able to notice when you're getting dysregulated. There are probably certain thoughts and feelings that come into your mind before you start lashing out. So one for me that I finally learned, like if I'm thinking this thought, stop, leave the, you know, excuse yourself, say, I'll be back in half an hour. Hold on. I'm just, I'm like getting dysregulated and I don't want to hurt your feelings. Let me go work this out and I'll come back to the conversation. So for me, some of the cues that that's beginning to happen is my nose will feel numb or um, I start having the thought, I don't need you. I don't need anybody. Or I have this thought, I have to do everything. Don't you realize you don't do anything. I do everything. That's, that, that's, that's like the pattern of my trauma-driven thinking. It's probably an emotional flashback. And, uh, but whatever it is, wherever it comes from, it's a really unreasonable and harsh thing to like direct at my husband. And it never leads to anything good for me to express this stuff when I'm in the middle of feeling it. And he can't, he couldn't do anything about it even if he wanted to. So I take it to my tools. I use my emergency re measures. I sit down and I use my daily practice to, for the writing and meditation techniques. And I come back to self-regulation. And from there, I show up that half an hour later and I go, okay, I think I hear what you're saying. I can actually, like, I actually have the capacity to hear what somebody's saying. Now, if you're like me, like a big upset within the relationship, if it, if, if it's allowed to continue and get really bad, you're going to stay dysregulated a lot longer than half an hour. And that's just a great loss for you and everybody, you know, the world is counting on you. And so, uh, you know, people will say, well, I don't have half an hour. And it's like, well, you're either going to spend a half an hour re-regulating, or you're going to spend half an hour, you know, just continuing down the road of like damaging everything. So sometimes we have to just kind of accept that having CPTSD to the degree that we get emotionally dysregulated, it takes a little time to come back from. And for many years, I had office jobs and I was going through this and I was learning how to self-regulate. And I just sort of found a way to um, separate myself. <laughs> People all the time, like, um, you know, are detached from their work to deal with a personal call or look at the internet or go have lunch. And I just decided, you know, for me, I just, I'm going to prioritize taking care of my self-regulation because if, until I'm regulated, I can't do productive work. I literally can't focus enough to write a paragraph or anything like that. My work, I do the kind of work that usually involves writing most of my life, writing, organizing a project. That's basically what I still do. But, um, but I can't do that dysregulated. I will spin all day in like a little circle of starting something and then jumping over to another thing. Like it looks like ADHD, but the, it's not ADHD because it just happens sometimes, you know, and then it goes away. I love being regulated. I love having 
the capacity to control my own thoughts. I can't 100% control my thoughts, but what I experience after I use my techniques is that I have a choice about what I want to think about. Like I never had that before I, I learned these techniques. I was just, I was basically like chased around by my thoughts all day long. I was exhausted by my own thoughts, my own emotions. And so I can sort of come to a place of neutrality and be able to decide, ooh, I'm going to focus on the list for my friend's party, or ooh, I'm going to lay down, or ooh, <laughs> I get to do whatever I want with my time now. And that is a tremendous power that can redirect your whole life and it can make you the most amazing sweetheart partner because your mind is there. Like that's what everybody wants. When we say we want to be loved, we mean we want presence in another person. We don't want them to be all about a storm that's going on inside them that we can't influence. You know, we want them present. We want to be interacting. We want to tell them how our day went. We want to hear how their day went. And of course, every relationship is going to have hard days, you know, arguments. That's all, that's all normal but not to the point that, that a person gets emotionally abusive. And that's basically what happens with CPTSD when it's untreated. So I'm so proud of you. Um, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, empowerment and de like disempowerment and demoralization and how that happens to CPTSD people. But that little desire, that desire to be better is such a beautiful part of ourselves. It's, you know, it's the sacred thing. It's why you can heal it, because it shows that that desire, that knowledge of what is good is intact inside you. And you need some techniques and some habits to start sort of redirecting yourself when your nervous system starts basically just like putting off fireworks because that's what nervous systems who have been through trauma do. You can retrain it. It takes practice. It takes courage. It takes being honest with yourself as you have been. I'm so proud of you. Um, I don't know about you, but people who are very early or haven't really started healing yet, they would experience this whole thing like, he does this to me. Why does he do this to me? But you're just going, wow, I'm getting really dysregulated. And that's how you now have the capacity to change the problem right in your hands by seeing that. I'm really proud of you. Thank you so much for listening. If you love my content, think about joining my membership program. You can find out more information about that and all my courses and coaching programs at crappychildhoodfairy.com. Remember, healing is possible. People with childhood PTSD can have a wonderful life. Sometimes we just need a few workarounds. I'll see you next time.